everybody and welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira and with me as always... Hello, I'm Sean Edry and if I'm going to have a past, I prefer it to be multiple choice. Killing joke? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so this is a comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Seaport, the best online and on-your-shelf resource for comic books, reviews, news, and in-depth analysis. Uh, we should probably mention that the documentary She Makes Comics should now be called the award-winning She Makes Comics because it won the best documentary award at this year's Comic-Con. Woohoo! And remember, Seaport is on Patreon. Support smart criticism in comics. We are now award-winning. <laughs> yes. So, since there's a lot of stuff coming in today, we'll probably get straight into the news. Sean? Yes. Okay, so one of the biggest things that happened in the intervening period is that Ant-Man has been released. Now, the reason I say this is significant is because, you know, we've talked about Ant-Man on this podcast before. I think we both came to see it as sort of this very major crossroads for Marvel because of all the behind-the-scenes drama. If they could succeed with this one, they could probably succeed with anything right. and everything. I mean, setting aside the fact that Ant-Man is a B-list character, like, going into it, there's also the issue that all of the drama with Edgar Wright leaving and the script rewrites and Peyton Reed coming in at the last minute, all of that business was publicly known. Everybody knew about it. So this could have been a very, very public spectacle. And I'm sitting and I'm watching it and I can see traces of Wright. Oh, yes. We're not going to go into excessive spoilers about the movie, but there's a sequence, for example, when Scott Lang's former cellmate is telling him, like, there's this flashback within a flashback about how people are giving him information, and it's just like this quick-cut conversation. Yes. And that was something that was straight out of Scott Pilgrim. I think the the most obvious right moment was the fight in the falling handbag, and then there's the music. Yeah. I will disintegrate you, and then Absolutely. playing disintegrator. That was straight out of the Cornetto trilogy, yeah. you know? Like, there was very, very clear influences. At the same time, though... Watching the movie, I finally understood why Wright left. Because there are certain sequences there that I know he didn't put in. Because oh. they exist, you know, with the chief purpose of situating Scott Lang in a specific time and place in the overall story. So, again, not to spoil, but there's a scene where he is sent to raid this old Stark warehouse for a piece of Pym's technology. And it turns out to be the headquarters of the uh, new Avengers that we saw at the end of Age of Ultron. And it's guarded and by... someone's there. Yeah, it's guarded by someone who lost a bet. Exactly. That whole sequence, I know that Wright didn't put that in there. And I'm guessing that they insisted on that simply to connect the movies, right? In order to make this a Phase 2 film. That said, the scene is not a bad scene. It's actually pretty entertaining. No, no, the movie as a whole, it's not bad, and I was really bracing myself for a huge disaster, but I could see, like you said, you can see the traces of Edgar Wright, and these are the best parts of the movie, and you can see the parts that are, you know, Marvel-initiated people standing in a mansion and talking. And but they're also not, not necessarily bad. For me, they were pretty bad. Like which scene specifically? The whole middle third where they're just standing in the mansion and talking and talking and the goddamn montage. This is 2015. Mm. You cannot play this straight. And they actually played it straight. That was, well, the montage was funny though. It wasn't I mean, it had me. some humorous and moments. And the whole thing about Hope, why she can't wear the suit, was it, mm. it was so dumb that it sort of became a self-parody of Marvel's refusal to give female leads their own movies. Yeah. It's like, well... She's better trained. She knows the territory. She knows the suit. She knows the technology. She knows everyone involved. She probably shouldn't wear the suit. Why? Because of reasons. Well, no. They say very clearly that his problem is that he refuses to 
Sender. Risk her. There was actually yeah. a scene. I mean, I accept that what you're saying is absolutely true in terms of it would have been nice to actually see Hope become the Wasp because she is a very compelling character. At the same time, the fact that they have this scene where Scott's like, I'm expendable and you are not. Within the logic of the film, um, it makes sense. It didn't work It's for still me. a problem because pointing at the problem doesn't mean the problem yeah. doesn't exist. I will say this, though. One of the strongest compliments I can give Ant-Man is, you know, besides the fact that it's entertaining and it has very amusing moments, it's not this patchwork abomination that needs to be run out of town with pitchforks and torches, right? Yeah, but not being bad. It's not it, really a compliment. It was better than Age of Ultron. I'll go that far because it was consistent and it was coherent, right? Yes, there was a problem of, you know, Corey Stoll just like radiates evil as Darren Cross from the moment he's on screen. He's like, okay, he's just crazy and we're not going to spend too much time on it. Just put him in the Yellow Jackets costume. It's fine. It's okay. We don't have to go into it. He's really like another failure to establish a compelling Marvel villain. Fine. But Paul Rudd does an amazing job. Michael mm. Douglas does an amazing job. The cameos are fun. Stanley's cameo is always amusing. Like, you know, there are things to enjoy in a movie that could have... Okay. When you consider the worst case mm. scenario, what could have happened with all of these different scripts and different rewrites and different directors and all that, it could have been horrible. Okay, financially speaking, the movie opened first weekend with 58 million, which mm. is... It's not the lowest of the Marvel movies opening no. weekend. That was The Incredible Hulk, which was, I think, 54 or something. But it's far, far away from the height that Marvel are used to with stuff like... Even Billy's character, like Guardians of the Galaxy. Which but it's is, Ant-Man. Yeah. Even... You know what? I would even put... I mean, Guardians of the Galaxy had the advantage of not really being known outside... Like a very, very specific... Not sounding like a gag from the get-go. When you say Ant-Man, yeah. it's like Aquaman, right? Like, I don't expect Aquaman to do well in theaters, even though they got the guy who played Khal Drogo, even though they're going for, like, a very Snyder-esque version. It's still Aquaman. You can't escape the reputation that the character has in the public consciousness. Well, so you, you I, can. It just takes a lot of effort, you know? Like, Batman, yeah. for a long, long time, was the gag character from the 60s up until the... Early 80s. And then Schumacher brought him back to... Well, well we don't yeah, have to go okay. into that. Uh, so anyway, it's a it's solid good. It's a solid movie and it's a solid success yeah. for Marvel Studios. In which case you have to ask the question, what can make them fail financially and critically? <sighs> Sometimes you got to stumble and they're on an upstream for like well, again, years. Again, if you ask me personally, I would say Age of All No, no, but I mean financially. Financially, I would say it's like the comics industry writ large. There's always going to be a core of people who go to see these films because they are Marvel films. Now, I will say that if this film proves anything, it's that the Marvel style that has proven so controversial of like getting puppet directors and not really being the place for unique vision is maybe viable for these films. Because I'm trying to imagine now like if all of the movie had been Edgar Wright, right? If it had it, been Edgar Wright's It Ant-Man. would have been a better movie. I don't know if it would have been better. It would I've, have been substantially different. For me, Edgar Wright is the best director of his generation. He's what? the best creator of the last six, seven years. But he's not without fault. For example, one of the things that came out like in the transition is that Hope had a much smaller part in Wright's mm-hmm. film. So the fact that there's this process... I mean, she really is a compelling character. And I have to say, I mean, Evangeline Lilly... Her last role before this was as the elf woman, the elf woman, because there's no other women in in, Lord, in the the Hobbit movies, yeah. and that was a terrible role. It was a really terrible role, and she did the best she could, but she was not good in that role. Okay, other movies. 
other movies, Justice League Gods and Monsters finally came out. The director DVD, Bruce Tim. By Bruce Tim. Yeah. Welcome back. You have been missed. Uh, so you didn't see this? No. I okay. kind of swore off the DC original movies after the last three or four were terrible. Really, really. Batman yes. versus Robin, uh, Son of Batman, these were mm-hmm. all No, I completely horrible. accept that criticism. I, I will say that you might want to give this one a look only because... It is an Elseworlds. It is like an alternate reality story. And on the strength of that, like, you don't need all of this other Batman versus Robin versus Son of Batman, Bride of Batman, all of this yeah, nonsense. I'm, I'm kind of tempted to go back for Batman Bad Blood simply because they're bringing in Batwoman. See, I'm torn about that. Like, I really want to see Batwoman in a film. At the same time, it's a continuation yeah, of, of Batman versus Robin and Son of Batman, which eh, were, again, crap movies. I can live without it. But, Going back to Gods and Monsters. So this was actually a very interesting project. Leading up to the film's release, there were a few animated shorts that were uploaded to YouTube. There was a comic book tie-in that focused on each of the individual characters. Basically, the premise is that you have a Justice League comprised of the Trinity, right? Like the three top superheroes at DC, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. But none of these are who we think they are. So Superman, for example, is the son of Zod. Batman is Kirk Langstrom, who has been turned into a vampire. And Wonder Woman is Becca of the New Gods. So she has a sword, she has a mother box, it's a whole thing. And I think this film works really, really well. It's actually one of the better animated films of the post-Tim and Dini era. Mm -hmm. Certainly in comparison to something like Crisis on Two Earths, which started well and just did not go anywhere good. But I think... What works here is, first of all, it's the fact that, you know, Bruce Tim gets it in a way that I think very few animated film writers do. He understands how to craft compelling characters. He understands how to present them as... Because they're not villains. They are hardcore yeah, characters who premise, kill people. The premise does sound a bit like a loser, like, it's darker and edgier, Justice League, yeah. It is and it isn't. It is in the sense that these are superheroes who <laughs> kill. Right? There's no getting around it. Vampire Batman actually bites someone. You know, Superman burns people with his laser vision. It's there. At the same time, they are not, quote-unquote, dark characters. Like, Batman actually has friends. Kirk Langstrom actually has people that... And he actually says, like, you know, I love these people. And Becca especially, like, her... She has this backstory that when you find out it's a complete reversal of your expectations... But it's really, really good. Well, you have convinced me. I will you watch it. You really this. should check it out. I will check um, it out. It is Bruce Tim, and he is still as good as he always Would was. Would you happy to see more movies in this continuity? Or is it yes. one shot done and it's, there's nowhere to go? It is a one shot, but it ends with the possibility... Because there are only these three heroes, you never see like this version of Aquaman, this version of The Flash, Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. There's none of that here. It's only these three characters, which allows... Tim to really, you know, show them off. The film ends with the possibility that maybe you could see more in the future, and I would love to, because as an alternate reality, it's a compelling setting, it's a compelling cast of characters, I would love to see more. Okay. Uh, Speaking of movies, there were a bunch of trailers in San Diego Comic-Con. Yes, which... Uh, we haven't talked about it in terms of specific details, because when the books will be solicited... Yeah, we're not not talking about all the billion books announced during there was a lot. SDCC simply because they'll be on the previews one day and we're talking about previews yeah. anyway, so we'll talk about them when we'll talk about them. We will talk about the Suicide Squad trailer, which mm-hmm. was... I liked it. 
It was interesting because this came out roughly at the same time that the Batman vs. Superman yeah. extended trailer came out. And the Batman vs. Superman extended trailer was not surprising in any way. No, I mean, I, it was really sort I think, of I think what was, you expected. I think it was good for what it was aiming for. It's not misleading. It's saying, no. this is what you'll get. I and, don't for think what you'll, anyone... and it's not something that I want to see necessarily, no. but if I were the type of person who wanted to see that type of movie, I would probably say, yeah, that's, right. that's I mean, perfectly what was, fine. What was significant was that they actually showed Wonder Woman this time. Like, she actually yeah. appeared on screen, and I think also they, there was sort of this very brief show of Jesse Eisenberg as Lex no, they, Luthor. Oh, they they showed him, and he, he had that weird Bad thing hair. about the red capes are coming. That was weird. Oh, I, I don't know I, what I, they're doing I here. have this thing, we talked about Ant-Man, where Darren Cross is this bold supervillain who's a technological freak and a tycoon, mm-hmm. and I'm... So now that DC's film Luther has hair, Marvel said, <laughs> "Okay, so we can steal the niche of the bold yeah. genius." Shave Corey Stoll's head, and we're good to go. You yeah. know, or they wanted Kevin Spacey, and they got Stoll. Oh, like, no. oh damn, the wrong House of Cards guy. Oh, D- darn it! Make but, him bold. I mean, Su- the Batman versus Superman trailer was not a surprise. Suicide Squad, I think, was. It was. It promised sort of an enjoyable B-level grinder action movie, which is what you expect from David Ayer. Right. Who does R-rated action very well. They weren't expecting, I think, or at least I wasn't expecting, right, having seen the trailer, I wasn't expecting it to be such a divergence from sort of the tone of the DCU so far. Well, it's still very, you know, dark and edgy and killing people, but they they, they take a lot of fun in murdering people, these guys. And I wasn't Which, I mean, when you look at the cast, it makes sense, right? We're talking about Deadshot, Harley Quinn. We're talking about characters who are acknowledged to be... Also, Batman. Batman's actually in the trailer. That was... Yeah. That was interesting. What wasn't clear to me, though, was was that actually Ben Affleck's Batman? Well... One of them was obviously a faker because there was this guy with an odd paper mache mask, and right. on the top of a vehicle there was this guy who actually looked like proper Batman. Because Ben Affleck isn't on the cast list. Well, no, movie, they so could pro- they they could probably just you know put him in a few scenes as a background character and right. some stuntman in a in a suit. This is the part that I'm actually concerned about because like when you look at the cast list. The Suicide Squad is abnormally large. Usually there's no more than like six or seven members at a time. And well, here it's like 12 characters. Well, they can kill them off. That's right. the fun of the Suicide Squad. You can murder them off. But in a two-hour film? Like when do you find Have you time? ever seen a David R. film? He can murder <laughs> off two dozen people in the first scene and you wouldn't okay. even notice. I will say that I'm, I'm considering going mm. seeing this. Like I have no interest in Batman vs. Superman. But Suicide Squad, based on the trailer, it did get me intrigued. Very unfortunate that they decided to go with that look for the Joker. They said they weren't going to, and they are. And he has the metal grill. For what? I don't know. Like, why? Um, X-Men Apocalypse? X-Men Apocalypse. So listen, we need to talk about the fact that... I mean, you have seen this meme. We need to talk about the fact that Apocalypse Oscar Isaac looks like Ivan Ooze from Power Rangers. They photoshopped, like, pictures of villains from Power Rangers onto that... Because the other other creatures look like their comic counterpart. I mean... We've come a long way since Wolverine's 2001. What are you expecting? Yellow tights to proper comic accurate Psylocke. Right. I mean, listen, Olivia Munn looks amazing as Psylocke. I'll say this. I didn't believe them. it's possible for a human being to actually pull that look without she being got it. utterly ridiculous. She got it. Storm also looks amazing. I mean, you know, I've had problems with Halle Berry for ages, but they actually brought Mohawk Storm. Mm. I'm ready for that. And, uh, you know, I've seen Jubilee. It has the look. Yes. 
Apocalypse, I don't know what's going on over there. But then I've seen so many different versions of Apocalypse over the years that I'm like, yeah. I'm willing to keep an open mind also and because it's Oscar Isaac. Yeah, he's he's a great, really good actor. Yes, he's a great actor. So I'm looking up it, but the X Men franchise as a whole has been a roller coaster of I don't know what they want. It's, it's been the, a mess. Yeah, it's it's, been a it's mess. the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. It's the same universe. It's a different universe. It's you should count up X Men one and two and the Wolverine, but not Wolverine Origins. But yes, you should count the scene in number one. Which mm. it's, it's I feel the, like it's there the worst been... bits of the comic continuity. Yeah, but literally. I, but I feel like on the one hand, yes. On the other hand, you as the viewer do have the ability to make that decision mm. for yourself. Like nobody went and said. X-Men Origins Wolverine has been retconned. But it's sort of like, you know, don't watch it. Just don't do it. Well, they did retcon tons of stuff because in X-Men Days of Future Past, Wolverine still had his claws. And in X-Men Wolverine, not in Origins, in the, the, the Wolverine movie, he lost his claws. Right. Well, you and, know what? And Xavier was dead or in a different body at the end of X-Men 2. No, because... No, 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 no. That happened in The Last Stand. So if you ignore... No, 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 no. All right. The last stand. In The Last Stand, he dies. But, but if you skip over The Last Stand, nobody ever is like, so you were dead and now you're back. It's just like, hi, Professor. Why should if, I... It's a thing that exists. If Brian Singer wants to establish that X-Men The Last Stand never happened, speaking as an X-Men fan, I am okay with that. Brian Singer should stop ignoring movies. Have you seen Superman Returns? Superman Returns, I don't know what that was. Brian Singer ignoring Superman 3 and 4 for his own continuity. But, and you've seen what happened. But in theory, though, the fact that he that movie was an utter failure, fine. But I'm saying, would you want Superman 4 The Quest for Peace to be canonical? I didn't want any of them to be canonical. I wanted them to start Ew. over. X-Men First Class should have been a fresh start. Why would they even... It was a fresh start. And then they decided to connect it for some okay. reason to that god-awful mess of a continuity. Well... They did it to themselves for no reason. I guess if the logic is that Days of Future Past is meant to be a comeback for, like, to see Ian McKellen's Magneto, to see Patrick Stewart's Xavier one more time, and that's it. Because they're not coming back in Apocalypse. I don't think even Hugh Jackman is coming back for Apocalypse. Well, Hugh Jackman did say... He's busy doing something else. Yeah, he said that the next movie and the last movie he'll do in the X-Universe will be Old Man Logan. Which could work. Because, oh, okay, maybe not the part where, like, well, She-Hulk is being well, raped well, by the Hulk. No, when, when maybe they, we can leave, it's we can like, leave that it's like, it's like Age of Ultron. When they're saying Old Man Logan, they mean the title, the, the name Old Man Logan, the general feel of it's the last adventure and he's old and he's great. Right. It's, they're not talking about actually doing Mark Miller comics per se. God, no. No. God, no. But I'm saying, like, as a concept, Old Man Logan feels like... It's like the Wolverine in the sense that it is it is a believable side story. Yeah, that but... you could take him out and just throw him into the wilderness and you don't have to do anything with it. Yeah, right? but the point is... the Wolverine, I thought, was Wolver- pretty decent. I but the, just really... But you I didn't need was... to watch it. You, like, you didn't need to watch other X-Men movies to get the Wolverine. I thought the Wolverine wasn't as bad as X-Men Origins, but that's it. None of them were really was, that good. I mean, it was an entertaining Wolverine story. Like, Wolverine isn't there's this desire to make him a solo character in the movies but really if you're watching it you need i mean it's the nature of a film you need a good supporting cast yeah. right and the wolverine wolverine you know, is a loner who's on three superhero teams full time yeah but it's and like, has like five sidekicks you can tell pretty clearly they wanted to do the frank miller and claremont yeah. japanese you know mariko yashida and all of that and it's like well if you're gonna do that you have to commit because the stories were like Old school, like, you know, Wolverine goes to Japan and has a sword duel with her father. It's like, 
you kind of have to go with it, right? The film was sort of struggling to get there, and I feel like Old Man Logan is the natural conclusion for that. Just take him, throw him into this apocalypse, have him do Mad Max. Sure, unforgiven. Exactly. Because then you don't have to deal with all of this mess, right? Then again, That's can, fine. Can you actually make Hugh Jackman old? He seems to be getting younger and bigger. <laughs> I've rewatched X-Men, the first X-Men, and he's practically uh, skinny there compared to what he is right now, which is yeah. two feet from the Incredible Hulk. Which works for Wolverine. I mean, the whole point yeah. is that he's an ageless character. I will say this, though, and I know that this is damning with very faint praise, but... In terms of, like, the expectation for Apocalypse. So, the road cut of Days of Future Past came out, and I watched it. It's only 17 minutes of extra footage, right? And it's not all about Rogue. But the additions that they put in made me go, you know, if this had actually been the film, it would have been pretty good. The future X-Men actually have dialogue. Hmm. Blink talks. She says things. That's the sort of thing that makes you go like, hmm, I would have liked that. You know, Bishop actually talks. He has dialogue. Storm has dialogue. These characters talk to each other. Have and they it, properly explained the stupid time travel mechanics? No, but the fact that Rogue comes in, like, that she plays her part, there was, again, like, it's really looking for, like, the tiniest gold nugget and, like, a really big mess. But there's, a, I'll say this much. I'll spoil this much. When she takes over for Kitty, right? So that she is officially replacing her and she's sending, and she looks at Wolverine and she says, hello, Logan. And that takes you back to, like, you know, these were the first two characters that were seen in X-Men, right? Like, the first two, okay. you know, going full circle. It's a tiny thing, but, like, look at how much emotional resonance the tiniest addition can make. Because Kitty Pride didn't have that in the theatrical cut. Yeah. Shall so, we move on to comics news? One other trailer, okay. though. Oh, okay. It's Deadpool! It's Deadpool, yes. It's Deadpool. Okay, so be honest with me, Tom. Are you going to go see the Deadpool film? Yes. So am I. That's like, I didn't need... I mean, okay. Ryan Reynolds is having a lot of fun with this movie. I don't know if you've seen, like, the pictures that he's been putting up on Some Twitter. Some of them. There's, did you see the Mary Poppins one? No. He's, like, jumping into the air with an umbrella, and it says, with great power comes great irresponsibility. And, I mean, like, if this is the tone that they're going for, like, a yeah, wacky I, I, screwball I, comedy... Yeah, I guess... Yes. I hope it's not long. 90 minutes of that type of humor is as much I can take before I start to groan. I doubt that it would be more than that. But, I mean, this looks like it's going to be the film of Deadpool that everyone wanted back when Deadpool wasn't, like, so ubiquitous that you were sick of him. So, yes, I'm ready for that. Okay. Uh, Proper comics news? Yeah. This is going to be one of those rants. Well, it's going to be... Okay, so Marvel have announced that... As their new titles are coming out post-Secret Wars, they're going to do a hip-hop-inspired variant cover series. So, for example, uh, the cover to Invincible Iron Man number 1, which we'll discuss shortly, is identical in design to 50 Cent's Get Rich or Die Tryin'. Kamala Khan's cover is modeled after the miseducational Lauren Hill. They're basically taking, like, album covers and putting superheroes into them. Now, it didn't take long for people to figure out that there was a bit of faulty logic here. Namely, what does hip-hop culture have to do with Iron Man? Well, like, what, I could what, understand what's his it. face? Uh, there, there's actually a rapper who named himself Tony Stark. Yes, but... And MF Doom and such guys. But still, I mean, there is... I don't know enough about hip-hop culture to authoritatively say, yes, there's this deep-seated connection to superheroes. But I will say, like, the character of Iron Man, right... What does that have to do with... With 50 Cent. 
Exactly. Like it does- Iron Man did not rise up from the streets. No. No. And you know It's the exact opposite of there was uh somebody gave the example, which again I don't know about the Ant Man cover. Which right. based on a CD in which the original was a young African American child with an afro, mm. in which case it's modeled into the Ant Man helmet. Yeah. And the album was called Dying in the USA or something like this. Mm. And the whole point of this cover and this C D was that young black people in the USA can die. Yeah. And you're just putting some dorky guy in a in a strange costume in his place and you're For what? You're not just ruining it, you're misusing the idea. Like you said, I know near to nothing about hip hop, so I would recommend to everybody's listening to read the David Brothers yes. essay on his Tumblr. He absolutely spoke Again, he's, thing, he's very, that article, the yes. David Brothers response was to our old friend Tom Brevert and knowing Tom Brevert, you just know he made things worse. Because what happened was a very simple question was asked, right? And it is sort of the question that you would immediately ask when you hear about this, which is Marvel is not currently known for having a wealth of black creators, right? I don't think, in fact, I don't think any of the books that are coming out are actually being written by African-American writers. When, when Al Ewing was doing Mighty Avengers, right? So yes. we had like the all African-American team. Al Ewing is not African-American. Now, that's not to say that he has to, but it's sort of like, okay, and Bendis is doing Miles Morales. Really, the only person no, no. who sort of comes close is G. Willow Wilson. No, 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 I don't, I don't, I, G. Willow Wilson is white. She's G. white, but like at least her Muslim background helps inform Kamala well, Khan. No, 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 okay, but that's a completely different thing. Now, I don't I'm not think, saying that they have to. I don't think that African-American creators should be on African-American characters, just like I don't think the best... They don't have to be. Yeah. Like, why did Brothers even write this response? Because, you know, Tom Brevert was asked, do you think that it's strange for you to be taking these images of, you know, you're actively courting African-American culture, right? You're doing hip-hop variants, you're doing it as a sales initiative. Do you not think it's strange that you're making this sales pitch, but none of your creators actually are black? And he said, well, what does one have to do with the other? And then yeah. David Brothers said, the fact that you ask that question, that you don't know what these two things have to do with each other, shows that there's a problem with Marvel's mentality, well, and this is not the first time they've done this. I think that what Brevard, to be fair, and it's hard to be fair, <laughs> but I'll try. You have to be fair to Tom uh, Brevard? For... Yeah, for his point, Marvel, like you said, is after sales. And hip-hop, nowadays at least, it's long, long time since to be the black thing in terms of who's it appealing to. Now, the creators are still mostly African-Americans, the big ones, the the famous names, the one who keep on bringing up and developing the genre. Mm-hmm. The people who buy it, everybody buys hip-hop in America nowadays. Everybody. It's a, it's a huge genre. No, but the fact now, that so, it's so, received what, by, by... No, 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 yeah, but what I'm saying... It's still being produced From Marvel's primarily. point of view, for them, and I don't support, I understand, as it were, for them, it's the same thing as the recently done DC's uh, classic movie cover month, which is... Well, it's a, they're just saying, it's well, it's a popular... Thing. No, no, I'm saying, for them, it's, it's a popular thing. By doing this, we'll get a few more, you know, uh, interests, a f- some few more clicks. They didn't even consider... And that's the problem, that they didn't even consider anything beyond that it's popular, we can use it. That was one of Brother's point, is you didn't even think about the implication, even a bit. And again, comparing it to the movie thing, it was it would have been as if, I don't know, one of the movie DC movie covers chose to quote, goddamn 
triumph of the will or I don't know something like that without understanding the concept and right. the context I, I don't want to defend Marvel they, no, it's, 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 not, it's, it's not defendable where it's a situation where you know it's a sales tactic that backfires because it shines a light on a problem that Marvel still have Brevard tried to walk this back afterwards and it's like we're promoting this because we want to create a welcoming environment for African-American creators. I was like, well, where are they if they're not working for you? Where are you not finding them? And let's not forget that this is not the first time that Marvel we has tried this We looked everywhere around their office and we couldn't yeah, we find could, a single, a single one. We don't know where they're hiding. They don't want to come and play with us. The last time they did this, they got Reginald Hudlin and Eric Jerome Dickey to do the Black Panther or Storm thing. And it was terrible. And the reason that it was terrible was because of that assumption of like, you know, well, if Black Panther... Mary's Storm, and they're both black, then black people will want to read it. And it's like, no, I think it was black terrible. people want to read good stories. I think just it was terrible like because Hudlin was a terrible writer, at least on Black Panther. He was. I, I haven't read any of his other stuff. What they did with the, I mean, I will always bear a grudge towards that story in particular because you do not mess with Storm. They minimized her character by making her Black Panther's wife. Fine. That's a whole different discussion. We don't need to get into it. But the thing here is like, if you are interested in appealing to a specific audience and they're not coming right because the black panther storm thing didn't get anyone's attention this is also not going to get anyone's attention like you know african-americans are not not, a po- not positive rushing towards marvel because not, not positive covers. attention at least right this is exactly what david brothers was talking about he says like there is no reason for you to think that this tactic will work because let's say people do show up and start reading your comics what exactly do you have to offer them if you were to pick up invincible iron man number one what exactly do you think people are going to find there that'll make them want to stick around. Because it's Bendis. You don't want Bendis writing black people. He doesn't do it well. I liked his Luke Cage. Luke Cage and Alias, where he's talking like a 50-year-old yeah, Yenta. Daredevil. Luke Cage and Daredevil was fine. No, okay. he oh. really wasn't. I mean, okay. he speaks like a stereotype. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's unavoidable with Bendis. Uh, shall we? In related news, mm-hmm. now what's happened, like, Marvel have failed with this particular move. DC, on the other hand, has officially announced that they are incorporating Milestone as Earth-M in the DC multiverse. That's weird, because when Milestone announced their relaunch, what, six months ago, mm-hmm. was it? They were talking about, we're independent, we're, yeah. we're rising to ourselves, we're not going to be part of the grand machine, and yet, here they are. Well, considering that during that period, they didn't solicit so much as a single comic. Yeah. Like, they were not in the previews. Nobody knew what was going on. I don't think even there was any announcement as to... the cr- Well, like they talked about... They talked about creators? That yeah, the, the, in, the, the, the founders were creators because the founders of New Milestone are writers yeah. and artists. Dennis Kwan, But nothing original. was ever... Yeah, I, I guess nothing came of it. Yet. Maybe DC wanted to. Now, unfortunately, this would be a meaningful announcement if anyone had any clear idea as to what the DC multiverse is. Because it's a bit of a mess. It is. It is. I've, I don't know what they're <laughs> doing there. Now, here's where I'm confused, because I'm not a regular DC reader, but from what I understand, post-convergence, there's some kind of new status quo in terms of how the DC multiverse and how these different stories and how continuity is meant to be explained. Dan DiDio did a two-part interview on Newsarama where he tried to explain it, and I'm like... 
Did Grant Morrison ghostwrite this uh, interview? No, no. See, what because, the hell is he no, talking about? Not like even Morrison, circles within not, each other. It's and, not even Morrison because I get what Morrison is trying to do even when I don't like it. But I can comprehend Morrison. <laughs> this was beyond me. This, this was, was some James uh, Joyce, Ulysses, Chapter 8, like Molly Bloom. Right? What are you talking about? Because it should be simple. There's the core DC universe and now we have a multiverse. So some stories take place in Elseworlds. That's all you need to say. And it's like DCU is part, Titans Hunt is a part and not a part, and Air Force oh One. Oh my god. Why it's... must you number things? Why and must you do that? The funny thing though was that when Didio started the interview, his exact quote was, one of the things you always hear from fans is that there are too many events and too many things that are tied together. I have to agree that sometimes our stories get so interconnected and intertwined that it's hard to read one without reading 20. He immediately then said, you know, when you read Lois and Clark, these are building blocks that are starting to integrate aspects of the pre-Flashpoint continuity into the current continuity moving forward that we established since the launch of the New 52. Oh, God. I don't care. Maybe start with telling good stories. Maybe we can start from there, we and had, then, like, in five we, years... Do you, you can... remember we had such high hopes for the post-conversion <laughs> thing? And then the damn tweaks, and now this... It's like watching a fish flounder, like gasping for air. Like, what are you doing? I'm parsing this and he's like, well, our fans say that things are too complicated. So we're integrating pre-Flashpoint continuity into the current continuity of the New 52 and Crisis on Infinite a Zero Hour. Hyper time. Oh, Grand Cthulhu. I was like, are you out of your mind? Then he starts talking about like concentric circles. And when you move into the core continuity and out of the core... But this has always been DC's problem, at least from the 1980s. They are too concerned with what counts as continuity and what doesn't. And I really wish that they would understand that no one cares. <laughs> like, when you are trying to tell stories about how the stories that you're telling are stories that count or don't count... And Nobody they... cares that Dark Knight Returns isn't in continuity. Exactly. Because it's the day or of Dark Knight Returns. Or if it is in continuity, what Earth it takes place on and how it relates they're, to other they're stories. They're so concerned about this that they actually try to form continuity to Watchmen. Watchmen did not need that continuity. No, and, and in fact, nobody who... It's self-defeating on both ends, because nobody who reads Watchmen, their first question is going to be, well, how does this fit into the DCU? And on the other hand, nobody who like finds a reference to Watchmen in, I don't know, the guidebook to the current DC multiverse, which is being revised every three months anyway, nobody who's going to read that is like, hmm, well, if it's so important to the core continuity, maybe I should read Watchmen. I mean, these things uh, have nothing to do with each other. Okay, and okay. Uh, let's move on moving before on. my head break. <laughs> well, my head might break from the next announcement. Image announced mm. that some of the first issues of their new ongoing series, Beauty, will be delivered with condoms. Free condoms. Free condoms. Well, yeah. I don't know the price of the... <laughs> because it's, it's the special variant edition, so I don't know okay. how much will it cost. Okay. I... Now, it's tied to the concept of the book. We've mentioned yes. the beauty before. The beauty is about a science fiction world in which beauty is a sexually transmitted disease. So mm. the books will come with a condom and a booklet explaining the how to treat the illness and how really to avoid makes sense in terms of, on the one hand, it's sort of this clever time, and on the other hand, nobody ever went wrong, you know, talking about safe sex. Because you should practice You have safe not sex. read the same Christian uh, guidebooks as I have. Oh, Listen, we don't need to talk about Christians and what they get up to when their pipes okay, start back okay. getting backed up. But uh, anyway, that's a whole different conversation. I, I, it's strange to me because it's the sort of thing that I'm used to DC and Marvel pulling off. You know, DC with the whole Green Lantern rings, Flash yeah. rings. 
And I'm not used to... But DC but would res- never put a cut on them. No, no, no but never. I'm not used to... It's the image, sort of image, you know. Dusky would do. Yeah, yeah, but I'm, I'm not used to image delivering knickknacks. And with all the respect, it's a damn knickknack. It's funny though. You well, have to admit, like it's, uh, Aviv Tsipin, it, who, who's a fellow comic critic in Israel with me, mm-hmm. had that line about, well, in ten years, somebody's going to sue Mark Silvestri <laughs> for some unwanted pregnancies, or I'm a shoe. Well. Which hopefully the beauty will be around in ten years, and people can be like, "Oh, this was this really amazing series." What are they going to do for the trade? That's what really makes you wonder. Oh, God. diaphragm! Like you open it's like Durex. I don't know. Okay, well, it's, it's, it's a strange. Odd. It's, it's just, a strange tactic. Well, well they've got our attention. We we now remember that beauty is a thing that exists because Image is launching so many yeah. books. Yeah, Mark Silvestri at his what? He's Top Cow Shadowline. I don't even no, remember. No, it's Top Cow. Top is like. Damn it, all those mainstream image books. I have to... Somebody's got to notice that they exist. Sex. Sex sells. Sure. Doesn't this sound like the sort of thing that would have happened with sex criminals eventually? I, I'd assume sex by Joe Casey. Probably. Or maybe it would... Maybe so, they both keep it for the crossover. For the show oh. to come. Because Image has these, you know, every once in a while, like the True Revival thing. Right. And the hack slash uh, Ooh, that would be messy, nail-biter. Though. So sex slash sex, sex criminals, criminals with a condom. Woo. Well, it's a cute tactic. I don't think that they should make a habit Jim of Zdarsky, it. Jim if you hear us, make it happen. <laughs> Joe Casey, if you hear us, make it double Work happen. Work together, people. Yes. Speaking of things that have absolutely no sex whatsoever, ever, and they will never, ever, ever have sex, Riverdale. So the live-action Archie series, ugh, just the thought of it descending a chills down my spine, has moved from Fox to CW. This move represents several things. First of all, Riverdale is going to be around forever and we're never going to get rid of it. It's going to last 10 seasons and we will be dying for it to get off the air and it will not go. Secondly, the actors will be terrible, but attractive. Thirdly, I no longer care. I Fox didn't care before, but I no Fox longer care Fox would have canceled it in like one season, maybe two. But whatever. Uh, Speaking of the CW, though, yes. there's some casting news. Okay. Now, you probably don't care about this because you don't watch The Flash. But no. There were a few casting announcements for The Flash and one for Gotham. I'll get to the Gotham one at the end. So, The Flash has cast Jay Garrick. It's Teddy Sears. He's a bit young, 38. That's very young for playing Jay Garrick. Very young for Jay Garrick, unless they're They're doing doing a time travel thing? I don't know if they're doing time travel or if they're going to do, like, Earth 2. In which case, maybe it sort of makes sense that he's yeah. not too old. Because I don't know how... Well, the in the Earth 2 comic is not the the actual series Earth 2 that was the post-52. He wasn't That's the James old. Robinson. Yeah. Right. Because that's like the Justice Society yeah. in the present day. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I prefer Jay Garrick as like the older mentor. The, the old statesman. But on the other hand, Grant Gustin is a fetus. So anybody would look old next to him. So they might as well. It's okay. fine. Uh, former wrestler Edge has been cast as Adam Smasher. Uh, it's important to announce that you're talking about the former wrestler, lest people think they're talking about I don't about know the, who that is. No, lest they talk about uh, The Edge. Oh, the YouTube guitarist. They have to announce that he's the former wrestler. <laughs> otherwise, you... Bono shows up as, like, the fly or something. I otherwise, you'd be confused, wouldn't you? Because you hear The Edge, most people think, yeah, the YouTube true. guy. Does anyone really think about YouTube these days, though? More than they think of wrestlers. Do they? I feel like those are two completely different target audiences. But the best casting news, for me at least, was that Captain Cold's father has been cast, and it's Michael Ironside. And I love Michael Ironside. He's one of those character actors that whenever he's around, it's like... He's the definitive dark side for me. General Granger from Command and Conquer. Whenever I see him, I'm like, this guy is so awesome! 
And he's playing Captain Cold's dad, and Captain Cold is a great character, and I am really, really looking forward to that. One other bit of casting news that has nothing to do with The Flash. Oh, boy. Yes. So, Michael Chiklis yes. has been cast in season two of Gotham as a regular. Well, there's a season two of Gotham. That's news for me. That's already bad news, right? Like, the fact that it's coming back, we already have a problem. Yeah. Michael Chiklis, though... So, do we have to talk about the fact that, like, he had a pretty decent career in The Shield, and, and then he nothing, did Fantastic Four, and that was the no end No Ordinary Family, Vegas, wow. terrible, terrible stuff all around. I mean, No Ordinary Family is a series that should have worked. It had all the components to work, and it did not in any I think, way, shape, I or think, form. oddly, it would have worked today if it started, like, one year, two years ago, instead of what was it, seven years it ago? It wasn't a time thing. The, the writing was really, really bad. I Again, mean, Gotham gets a second season. So ooh. these days, if you're a superhero show these days, you get the breaks. Yeah. Even Heroes gets a second win right now. Well, Heroes is a completely different story, though. Heroes is okay. one of those things What where... I'm saying is it's yeah. terrible or not, because we've mentioned Smallville was damn terrible. It was yeah. a question of time. I mean, I like Michael Chiklis, and I'm for him getting work. <laughs> But Gotham? You couldn't do better than Whatever. that? Whatever. Let's finish with the comics now. Okay. With the horrible, horrible... Con- <laughs> okay, so the, the Harvey... Old people are attacking! So the Harvey Awards, which are to the Eisners what the Emmys are to the Oscars, mm-hmm. have That's announced... accurate, actually. Well, yeah, nice. Yeah. Okay. Have an- I didn't even work that sentence before. Usually I read these things down. <laughs> so, have announced their winners for this year, and some of them are okay. There's a lot of Valiant, which... Raises a lot of eyebrows, but okay. The odd thing was, in their category of young and upcoming talent, mm. included such folks as uh, Jean Van Meter, whose first <laughs> written comic gig was in 2002. Jean Van Meter. Young and up and coming. Neither of those things are true, because... She already came in. She was very successful. And what has she been up to lately? I don't know. She oh, she did. She's she's Valiant. I think, I think the, she did Death Defying Doctor Miracle, ah, which okay. got great reviews. Yeah, I think. But you know who who's going to win this award? Stan Lee. <laughs> That's just well, it's, it's young and up and coming. You don't get much bigger than see, Stan see, Lee. And it's one of those things which is really stupid when you talk about it. But it brings up the question: What's the borderline? How many years and where do you start counting? Because, for example, one of our favorite. Talking points. Uh, Noel Stevenson. Noel Stevenson. When you start talking about Noel Stevenson's Is career, she nominated for this? No, no, no I'm saying, mm-hmm. in general, if you were to talk about Noel Stevenson, would you consider her up-and-comer? Sure. How, thing- how many... When do you start counting? You start counting from the first online strip of Nimona no, or from their no, first no, 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 published no, no, no. work when on you- paper? What's the starting line? What's the end line? I can tell you what I think. I, I don't know what the official policy is. But, for example, Nimona was a work that was published and distributed freely, right? It was a webcomic. She didn't have to go through any kind of approval process or marketing or anything. She just uploaded it to her website and you had this webcomic. I would say, for example, Noel Stevenson's career would have begun with Lumberjanes because that was the first project where she was being paid for her work. Yeah, but by right? that logic, you know, the Penny Arcade guys are still up-and-comers. No, but the Penny Arcade guys aren't producing work in the mainstream industry, right? They're yeah. still doing their own well, thing. I assume you can be you can be awarded for a webcomic nowadays, and if not, it's just weird. I'm sure you can, and in fact, I'm sure that uh, didn't Nimona like win an award for something? Yeah, but the question is, in the Arvies, can you be awarded as an up and comer for a webcomic? I doubt it. 
I think that they're still very focused on sort of like the mainstream mm. industry. That would be one argument, right? But Jan Van Meter has been... Jan Van Meter has won awards for being up and comer in 2003. Right. And for mainstream work. Yes. It's not like it was some indie thing that nobody ever heard of. Yeah, and, and along like... with the really, really like 80%, 70% Valiant. That's just That weird. sort of makes sense to me. Well, because the thing about Valiant is that as they exist right now... They are the newest alternative to the big two in terms of superhero universes. Even something like Invincible for Image is relatively contained to itself, right? It's not the sprawling thing. Yeah, but with it, the Avi Award isn't the superhero-based award. No, just... but, but if you were going to acknowledge accomplishments in a field that still had a claim towards mainstream Yeah, but attention. like we've mentioned, the Emmy, for me, it's just as weird as if 70% of the winners for the Emmy Awards this year weren't even, not HBO, stars. They you usually know? are. Well, you know what? I would feel compelled to give them an award just because they're Valiant. Like, who would have thought, right? <laughs> if you had read Valiant 20 years ago and like, so Valiant's coming back and your first thought is like, uh-uh, nope. Not with the big hair and the shoulder pads. I'm not here for that. I don't have time for it. I, there are other things. And they really did manage to redeem themselves in a way that I think Image hasn't. Because what Image did to rehabilitate itself from its 90s reputation was just to do different things altogether, mm-hmm. right? If you look at Image in 1996 and Image in 2006 and Image in 2016, these are different companies altogether. And if you were to take Valiant, though, I mean, it's the same characters. It's just different creators, different sensibilities. They had Harbinger in the 90s. They had Bloodshot. You know, they had uh, Exo Manowar and, all, and yes. all that stuff. These things existed. So the fact that they managed to sort of stage this comeback and bring back these properties and not have them be dated should be acknowledged. I'm not saying give them all the awards, but, you know, they should have their day in the sun. Okay, shall we move on to the previews? Previews! Uh, Marvel? Yeah, okay. So... Uh, Praise Thanos, Secret Wars is over, sort of. Sort of, kind of. Now, the <laughs> is this because of this? I just have to ask before we get started. This month is weird because it features the end of Secret Wars, the end of books before Secret Wars, and the beginning of books that take place after Secret Wars. Is this because of the scheduling problems? I assume. Because it's like the last issue of Secret Wars comes out. And the first issues of the post-Secret Wars continuity. And Ms. Marvel. And the Secret and. Wars trade at the same damn month. Ooh. Uh, anyway. The, so let's start. Okay. Uh, Marvel have one of those annoying, annoying, we sell you commercials. Marvel, all mm-hmm. new, all different Marvel. Point one, number one. That's stupid. I owe 56 mm-hmm. pages, $6. It's basically bits and pieces of some of their new titles, including... Daredevil, Carnage, classifi- Classified, uh-huh. are my favorite title, Classified, classified. Agents classified, of S.H.I.E.L.D. Classified, Classified. Yes. <laughs> they're asking us to pay for commercials. That's six dollars. No, yeah. thank you. No. No. First two issues of Invincible Iron Man. We've talked about it. Brian Michael Bendis and David Marquez. It's a poor fit. Let's oh, move oh, on. Oh, speaking of stupid, one of the things they publish with these point one things is Contest of Champions number one. <gasps> Now, Contest of Champions number one <laughs> actually comes out during this month. No, no, no. That's, we, that's we, the worst publishing strategy ever. Let's talk about this, okay? okay? Contest of Champions number one. Ongoing. An ongoing series by Al Ewing. So far, so good. Art by Paco Medina. Okay, and then... He's not dead. Come on. And it's a video game tie-in. In all your years as a comic book reader, has there ever been a video game 
tie-in to a comic book tie-in to a video game. No, this is, I'm sorry, this is a comic book tie-in to a video game based on a comic. It is Al Ewing, though. It is Al Ewing. And he has worked with worse artists than this. Don't forget, that man managed to bring, to spin out, not gold, but at least proper bronze or silver from Greg Land. Well, hang on. Al Ewing isn't the problem here. I'm saying, like, you know, that concept of comics tying into video games, tying into comics... You know, Sean McKeever couldn't do it with Rise of the Imperfect. and That was Greg Pak, not Sean McKeever. Sean McKeever did something. I don't remember what it was. If it wasn't Rise of the Imperfects, it was another fighting game. Yeah. Didn't go well. Just don't do it. And the fact that they're like, it's a post-Secret Wars series that's based on Secret Wars. No, thank you. Uh, Blade number one by yeah. Team Seeley mm. and Logan Ferber. That's the one where Blade gets a daughter sidekick, right? Well... This is confusing to Spin me. Spin off Baby's Blade. First of all, I sort of want to read this. Yeah. Because Tim Seeley is really good. I sort of want to. Logan Ferber is a co-creator. This was announced at ACCC. Now, apparently, this girl Fallon is Blade's daughter. The way that it was presented made me think that she is a canonical character. That she existed beforehand. I don't remember ever having seen a reference to Blade's daughter. How many lost children did Wolverine had? The suggestion seemed to be that she had appeared beforehand. Well, I haven't this read... This is not a new character. Well, I haven't read all of, you know, 1970s Tomb of Dracula. Maybe. Exactly. Like, it could be. Either way, though, I'm sort of interested. And, in fact, like, bringing Blade back, it's one of those things where we talked about, like, the only upside to Secret Wars is the fact that you could maybe try and do things that hadn't worked in a while. If you want to try and do Blade again... Bringing Tim Seeley on is a good move, right? Because he could get it done. We'll see. I will be picking up the first issue. Uh, Speaking of things that are potentially interesting and mm -hmm. that have a background that maybe did not go so well, Angela, Queen of Hell. This is by Marguerite Bennett, art by Kim Jacinto and Stephanie Hans. Now, I read the first arc of Angela Asgard's Asgard's Assassin. Assassin. Didn't like it so much. But it might have been... The Fault of Kieran Gillen, who is now sailing into the sunset and is no longer at Marvel. This is really Bennett's first chance to make an impression on her own, because the other book that she's been working on, Years of Future Past, is a Secret Wars tie-in. Like, I'm not looking at that. She's also doing the Angela Secret Wars tie-in. Secret Wars is enough of an imposition that I don't really consider it a test of somebody's Mm -hmm. skill. It's like a useful experiment, I guess, but Queen of Hell is really sort of... Bennett's Trial by Fire. And I hope that she can do it. I'll be coming back to check out the first issue of this just because I feel like maybe without Gillen plotting his weird, weird decisions where all of a sudden she's with the Guardians of the Galaxy and then she comes... Don't want to deal with any of that. Blame Bendis for the Guardians part. But Bendis wasn't writing it. This was Gillen's decision to go back and do that. Now he's gone. I want to see what she's going to do. So maybe okay. this will work. Uh, Karnak number one, written by Warren Ellis. I knew you were going to go of for that. Of course you knew. Mm-hmm. And art by Gerardo Zaffino. So Karnak is the new man whose power is to see the flaws and everything, which you can see why Warren Ellis would like this kind of character. Sure, it's what he does every day. <laughs> oh, you mean person. It's true. You Warren Ellis wakes up every day, he smokes a couple of cigars, and then he looks at the mirror and he's like, anyway, this is all Anyway, yeah, the thing is, uh, S.H.I.E.L.D., Phil Coulson from S.H.I.E.L.D. comes mm-hmm. in and 
begs him to help him with the strange case. So I assume, even though it's announced as an ongoing, it's no. a miniseries, no. it's gonna last six issues, and then Warren Ellis will go away. If it's successful enough, Marvel will bring someone else to I mean, it's Karnak. Well, it's Karnak. Warren Ellis managed to revive Moon Knight, and that was a failure for, you know, years and years, so why not? Moon Knight was a failure, but Moon Knight was at least a recognized... Like, if you went to someone and said Moon Knight... They might know what you're talking about. Karnak has always been part of the Inhumans cast. Well, the Inhumans. Marvel is still really trying to push hard the Inhumans. Yeah. And if you want to push hard the Inhumans, you have many worse places to go than War and Alice. Yeah. Your choice? So, my pick for a rather interesting and yet bizarre book mm. is Doctor Strange number one by Jason Aaron and Chris Bacalow. Sold. Okay. It's not a surprise that they're trying to bring back Doctor Strange, considering that the movie's coming out, right? So they want to build him up. Aaron has shown some flexibility in terms of, you know, the bizarre adventure type thing. So that might work. Chris Bacalo, I mean, Doctor Strange do is perfect for yeah, him. Yeah. Just like clouds of color everywhere. Fine. It wasn't entirely clear to me what Aaron's premise was, because the, the art shows Doctor Strange running around with a bow and arrow and an axe. And I'm like, that doesn't really go with Doctor Strange well, but on the, the other point. hand exactly like that might be because Doctor Strange has always been a really problematic character for Marvel they've never really managed to there are bits and pieces of gold nuggets in this history the Brian K. Vaughn miniseries this could be interesting and I'm really looking forward to it I'm going to move to collections the Superior Foes of Spider-Man Omnibus mm-hmm. uh, issues 1 to 17 $50 bit expensive but not too much for Marvel it's probably the best thing Nick Spencer ever did. It's a really great, fun, crime caper, betrayal amongst thieves type of series in which Spider-Man, not even B-least, like C-least enemies, the, the new Beetle, <laughs> Big Wheel, whatever, uh, try to stab each other in the back in order to get riches and fame. Okay. It's really, it's a great fun of a series. I think you love it, you know. Even I liked it, and, um, Nick Spen- and the Nick Spencer hatred is strong with this one. I have been hearing a lot of people talking about this. Nick Spencer, like, as a is- rule, is better at Marvel than at Image. It's almost like the opposite of every other Image mm-hmm. creator, because when people impose borders on him, when people tell him, no, you cannot do this, he's like, okay, so I'll do something more normal, and it turns out for the best. I will be checking it out. Okay. It's an interesting series that I wasn't reading at the time because I have a very strong antipathy for anything that Dan Slott does with Spider-Man. And this series spun out of... like that Well, I, I really thing. like Dan Slott's Spider-Man, so I well, have that problem. Okay. Well, keeping with the all of these number ones that mm. are post-Secret Wars, Extraordinary X-Men number one and two by Jeff Lemire and Humberto Ramos. Now, I was going to pick this up. I really was, because Jeff Lemire on the X-Men, after Secret Wars, I thought, you know, fresh start, let's do this. But the X-Men from the past are still here. It's beyond irritating. Like, how much longer are you going to drag this BS on for? So I'm actually going to give it a pass, because mm-hmm. I'm uh, sick of that plot I'm going to give it a pass simply because, and I know it's unpopular, I'm not a big fan of Humberto Ramos. I don't like his characters. I feel like I could put up with it for Jeff Lemire. Mm-hmm. But not, like, Jean from the past and she's hanging on old man Logan's arm. Ugh, ugh, ugh. No, no. Uh, anything else from Marvel? A whole bunch of stuff from Marvel, actually. Uh, so, so okay. quickly. All right, so, uh, Howling Commandos of S.H.I.E.L.D. number one. This is by Frank Barbieri and Brent 
Shuniver. Didn't like Five right? Ghosts. I will skip that. I sort of liked Five Ghosts at the start, but the thing is, I knew that I had heard something like this before, so I went back into the yeah. archives. Keith Giffen did a horrible, horrible series. Really bad. You had Vampire by Night and Warwolf and Gorilla Man and an intelligent a, it, clone of Frankenstein's monster. It's a good concept. It just didn't work. It didn't work for Giffen. Mostly, you know what? It sounds more like a Dark Horse project. It, it sounds does. Like, like Dark Horse actually has a series coming up called The Paybacks, which is, you know, Creatures of Night, Agents of Something or Other. Right. The Paybacks. Now, Frank Barbieri, you know, Five Ghosts started well and went all the way downhill in the second arc, but maybe this one will work out better because I like the concept of, like, S.H.I.E.L.D. having a monster squad. Yes. Could be interesting. Actually going to be picking up an Avengers book, which is... Unconventional for me to say the least. New Avengers number one and two by Al Ewing and Gerardo Sandoval. The lineup was what got me here because we have Sunspot of the New Mutants, Songbird of the Thunderbolts, Hawkeye, which is Clint Barton, and Wiccan and Hulkling from the Young Avengers, and of all people, Squirrel Girl. And they're heading up AIM. They're now in control of AIM, and it's Avengers Idea Mechanics. It's like this think tank, uh, see, uh, terrorist Yeah, I'm going to pick it because I love Al Ewing. It's uh, Al Ewing. It's this high science fiction approach. Consider picking this up because it looks amazing. I don't know if we should even dignify this with a mention, but Spider-Gwen number one Next. Is, next, right. You know, it is the same. Spider-Man 2099. No, no, no. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Uh, I want to mention Spider-Man 2099 because the title is a lie. It's Peter David and Wilson Lee, but Miguel O'Hara has been completely integrated into present-day Marvel Universe. The fact that he comes from 2099 is irrelevant. You don't see 2099, you don't do 2099. It is a lie, and I will not put up with it. In uh, more pleasant news... Unbeatable Squirrel Girl number... It's just like... I'm sorry. Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, just like Spider-Gwen. I, no, uh, hang on, hang on. One for no Unbeatable reason. Squirrel Girl... No, Squirrel Girl ended, though. It was a miniseries that concluded, and now we have... It's another... It's not clear whether this is a miniseries or an ongoing, but like they're bringing it back. If it, it succeeds, back. it's an ongoing. If it fails, it was <laughs> always a mini. Okay, fair enough. We were always like, at a miniseries with East Asia. Thank you, Big Brother. But I am glad that... Squirrel Girl's coming back, because North did a pretty good job with her. Mm. So, okay. Do we want to mention Chewbacca? Yes. <laughs> no, okay, so Chewbacca number one and two by Jerry Duggan and Phil Noto. Because oh. after Lando, you might as well, right? Gary Duggan, but fine. Is this Phil be like Noto, groups? very good. Like, there's two ways to do Chewbacca. Either you represent his speech as, like, you know, in, in brackets, so he's actually mm. talking but nobody understands him, or it's going to be like... Like Groot, like... Uh, well, they did pretty well with Groot, so why not? I still wait for the crossover. Surely they will do Guardian <laughs> Star Wars in comics. It has to happen. Yeah. Disney owns them both, and yeah. they're, they're going to do it. So there's a trade that I want to draw attention to, and I don't usually talk about trades, but this one caught my eye. The trade of A-Force, mm-hmm. number one through five, these are the Secret Wars issues, is labeled Volume Zero. That just tells you how important it is. Well, it's not the first time they're doing this. The Silk Volume 1 is also... Issues 1 to 7 of Silk are called Volume 0. Fine, I'll skip it. Zero means nada. It means nothing. So, if you're telling me that I should be skipping A-Force because I do want to... Your hatred of Alashkot is now leaking into other things. What does Alashkot have? Oh! (laughs) My my zero trauma. No, no, no. I'll tell you what the thing is. I really want to read A-Force when it's not Battleworld. Mm. That book hasn't been solicited yet. They said it will be coming out. I'm looking forward to it. The Secret Wars thing, we talked about it, we reviewed it, didn't work for me. Uh, So, Volume Zero never happened. Moving on to DC. 
I think we can skip all of the DCU stuff because, um, good God, I have no idea what's going on. We can. Well, there are two things that sort of caught my eye. Batman and Robin Eternal? Yeah. Just because it's Scott Snyder, it's James Tinian, it's Tim Seeley, it's Steve Orlando. These are writers who, you know, if you've been enjoying their work so far, you have more of it, congratulations. It's the I'm new, not going to read it. It's the new weekly Batman series taking over from Batman Eternal. Batman Eternal got good reviews. Yes. People who read it seemed to enjoy it. It wasn't, wasn't as bad as Countdown. A few things could be. Nearly half a year after Convergence, we're getting Convergence Aftermath books. Yay! So, I mean, in October, we have Superman, Lois and Clark, number one, by Dan Jurgens and Lee Weeks. Telos, number one, by Jeff King and Carlo Pagluan and Jason Paz. And Titans Hunt, number one, which Dan DiDio mentioned, by Dan Abnett and Paul Sequiera. None of these sound interesting, especially as, like, they're follow-ups to a filler event that happened in June, and this is in October. I like Dan Abnett, but Will you I even remember to... that Convergence happened by October? I hope it will be reskin out of my mind. No, but the real reason that we should be excited for October is... The Vertigo launches are starting. Vertigo announced there will be 12 new series. Some of them are minis. Most of them are ongoing. Mm-hmm. Coming out later this year. Even if they're minis. Minis yeah. are good, too. And the first one is The Twilight Children, written by Gilbert Hernandez and drawn by Darwin Cook. You need to hear nothing more, really. Well, it, you can look at the plot and it'll be two people reading the phone book and I wouldn't care. Is, it's Darwin Cook. Is that because Cook. of Darwin Cook or is it because of Gilbert Hernandez? It's because of Darwin Cook. Okay. And it's uh, because it's a personal project. And Darwin Cook, when he does what he wants to do and not, you know, whatever DC Comics asks him to do, mm-hmm. he's great. He's he awesome. Is. He's amazing. I will say... This is a somewhat controversial opinion, but I will say that I was never a huge fan of the Hernandez brothers. I mean, I tried Love and Rockets, but it never really clicked for me in the way that... I mean, it has a very passionate fan yeah, base. I think I think it's, for me, it's more of the appreciate rather than enjoy. Yeah, you can understand what, what people are finding there. You can mm-hmm. you can appreciate the craft of it. and mm-hmm. It was never skip. for me. Yeah. But, you know, this is a miniseries about blind kids and aliens invading a quiet seaside it's, town. It's a Vertigo series. It could be good. I think the interesting one is Survivors Club number mm. one, uh, written by Lauren Bukes and Dale Helverson, mm-hmm. and drawn by Ryan Kelly. Now, Lauren Bukes is a science fiction slash fantasy writer. And a pretty good one, and, too. Yeah, she did The Shining Girls, which I have not read. She did Broken Cedar recently, and while I was reading it, I thought, that's a damn Vertigo series <laughs> in the book form. It's Vertigo a, it's, probably thought the same thing. Yeah, like, hmm. and so they hired her to do a story about a well, bunch of people. So it goes, it's about three characters, right? One was possessed by a poltergeist. Another mm. was trapped in a haunted house. A third had a killer doll. Ever wonder what happened to those children of the 1980s? I might be misreading this, but it sounds like she's talking about the main characters of the big 80s horror movies, right? Like the killer doll has to be Chucky, yes. right? And uh, The haunted house is poltergeist. The haunted house would be poltergeist, and then the one the, that the actual polter- poltergeist is either exorcist, or it could be... No, um, exorcist is the 70s. Is this, like, sort of a, a sly attempt to do I think, these characters, or yeah, is it something No, original? I think it would be less popish because if it would have been just a straight-up uh, pop horror thing, it would have been a hack slash mini series. Right. Now, I will say that some of these film franchises, right, like Child's Play, for example, they did follow the protagonist, but putting them all together... That's interesting. Usually in horror movies, you have this inclination, like, if you're going to have a crossover, it's going to be the villains that crossover, right? Like, no. Freddy versus Jason. And here it's like, no, let's get 
this character and this protagonist and put them in the same room and see what happens. So uh, Ryan Kelly did local, if I remember correctly, right? Mm-hmm. And he was damn good. Yeah. At the small personal character moments, he was very, very good. Clean room number one. That was announced yokes. This was announced around the same time as Effigy, right? And it sounded also like they had similar premises because Clean Room, written by Gail Simone, art by John Davis Hunt, it also deals with like this giant self-help organization that mixes psychology and religion, in other words, Scientology, but also the cult and Effigy, right? Mm-hmm. Effigy does not appear in the Vertigo solicitations for October, but Clean Room does. So was it a case of maybe they were too similar and their like Vertigo was alternating their schedules, or maybe Gail Simone was too busy with her uh, with her she, what? What is she? She doing? was doing Lara Croft, at Dynamite, Dynamite, Image, Dark Horse. Some, she was doing a Lara Croft probably series. Dark Horse. Dark Horse, yes, probably Dark Horse. So but maybe I mean, she was too busy. Really? I don't know. Mm. One other interesting project. Uh, well, Art. Oh yeah, mm. Art Ops number one, written yeah. by. Uh, Sean Simon and, him. and drawn by Michael Allard. Well, him you, I know. You probably don't want to know him because Sean Simon was a co-writer of the True Lives of the Fabulous Killjoys, the not so good Jared Way project. Yeah, that's a Jared Way project. No, but we he, don't talk but about. he was a co-writer. Okay. He's not responsible. No. <laughs> you would pick this book up for Michael Allred. And the concept is really neat. It's about uh, <laughs> pieces of art escaping from their drawings and the Special forces team sent to get him back. Mona's on the run. Yep. Is what's happening here. Okay, like, the, can you imagine, like, the dude from the screen painting? <laughs> oh, like, I, I imagine. Okay. I'm gonna try the first issue. It sounds like great big fun. I really am overjoyed that Vertigo is going for the off-the-wall angles. Like, mm-hmm. it's not another Sandman book, which, as much as I love Sandman, like, you know, they're trying to do their own thing. And it's been a long time since they've done that. And I'm glad that they're making that effort because you remember like we talked about when Karen Berger left we were like okay the and, sick, the and, ship and is none sinking. Of, yes and none of the luncheons since then you know dead boy detectives and the names and the physics right. bureau uh, police department right FBP or something yeah I can't even remember the name and I've read yeah. it it wasn't very good Dark Horse have only one project that I'm interested in mm-hmm. uh, the Planetes Omnibus Volume 1 I assume it's spelled Planetes mm-hmm. it's a manga series I'm talking about because I've watched the anime which was very good it's a very hard level science fiction series about the not so far future in which space travel has become semi-commercial mostly corporations in space mining the closer planets and asteroids okay. and it follows a small team of debris hunters whose job is to pick up space debris from orbit in order to save shuttles so nobody okay, will get manga. no but the thing is it's all played very straight and none none of them have giant transforming robots and the big no. and the big plot point is that because they're so small and understaffed and everybody treats them as a joke, like, oh, you're the guys who pick up the breeze. So they have this incredibly dangerous and life-saving job, mm-hmm. but they have absolutely no budget. But if you were to swap debris for bounty hunting, you get Cowboy Bebop. No, which but... Which I adore. Well, yeah. I, I love I think series. I'm going to look at previews when they come up, and okay. if they look good as the anime series, I'm going to buy this. I will actually check out the anime series, mm-hmm. now that you mentioned it, because why not? Yeah, it's a good show. Right. Image... So, some of the books from the most recent Image Expo have already started turning up, which, when they had their first Image Expo, we sort of laughed about the fact that, you know, they announced these books, and then three years later, they turn up, and like, what is this? Who? Where did it come from? But they're really picking up yeah. the pace. So, I want to start with 
Accent number one. Because poor literacy is something that exists in image. Shane, the 90s are not over. Shane Davis, Michelle Delecky, and Maury Hollowell are doing... The way that they describe it, it sounds like Tron meets Inception. Like, video games are coming into our reality. I could be into that. It sounds completely ridiculous, but why not? No, the thing is, it sounds completely ridiculous, and that they're trying to play it straight. Okay. Uh, that That could work, you know? There's a way to do it. I'm not sure, because I don't know these creators, so they might not be able to pull it off. If Tron were to spill outward into reality, what would happen? Okay, something that I know will be good. Mm. Black Magic Number 1, written by Greg Rocca, art by Nicholas Scott. Mm. It's about a witch detective. Okay. And uh, Greg Rocca. Greg Rocca doing gothic noir. Yes. Detectives and sorceries. So far, so good. In right? wheelhouse. The thing is... Rucka is a lot like Alice in the sense that he's so consistent across a wide spectrum of work. There's a little bit of danger of repetition and subsequent boredom. I assume you would say Brubaker, if anything. What do I see here, right, in terms of the Mm. preview for Black Magic? It probably is not going to surprise anyone that the protagonist is a female detective, tough as nails, maybe a little damaged. It's Lazarus with magic, right? And then it's like, well, Lazarus was not compelling simply because she was Tara Chance. And which one of them was Renee Montoya? Oh, well, there you go, right? This is not a knock against Rucka, because what he does, he does very well. Because I am going to pick this up, but what I don't want this to be is a situation where the main character is just Lazarus again, or Renee Montoya again. It's a good thing that you don't follow all the small person announcements, because one of his other projects, upcoming... Is Dragon Age spin-off comic in which two Oy. tough as nail female mercenaries. Oh. <laughs> He's there. He's right oh. there. It also, I mean, I love Dragon Age, speak, but I don't. Speaking go of uh, Brew Baker, uh, just like the Fade Out issue number one will come in regular format or six yeah. dollar large magazine format. Yeah, again, like this is playing to Rucka's strengths, mm-hmm. and I know that he's going to pull it off. See, I say I hope that he tries to branch out, but he's not going to. So we'll hope for the best. Okay. On the other end of that spectrum, right? If we're talking about like things that are familiar and possibly repetitious, I Hate Fairyland number one by Scotty Young and Jean-Francois Bolo. It's finally here. I've been really looking forward to this ever since they announced it. Gert is six years old. She has a giant battle axe and she will tear Fairyland apart to get home. Uh, There is no part of this that I do not want to read. Well, I'm sort of skeptical about it as an ongoing. I can see that as a mini. How can you, how long can you stretch that idea before it becomes the joke loses its charm? I'll, I'll give it a I, shot. I feel like it I'll could give work. it a shot, but I'm just, I'm just doubting if it can carry the burden of an ongoing. I don't think it has to. I mean, like, if this makes it to 12 issues and Scotty Young is like, okay, I'm done, the end. She has killed all of the little bunny rabbits and no one is singing in Fairyland anymore. I'll be like, okay, that's good. Paper Girls number one. Yay! Written by Brian K. Vaughn, art by Cliff Chiang and Matt Wilson. It's I'm a sold. new. Yeah, it's a new. I don't care. I don't care. Three dollars, forty-eight pages. I'm double sold. Ongoing series about newspaper delivery girls in 1988. I don't even need. I don't care. It's Brian K. Vaughn. I don't need to be told. I'm there. Next. Here's a weird one. Okay. Switch number one. That's Step a stranger. Mm-hmm. This, you know, I tried to figure it out because there was no. It wasn't part of the Image Expo, and it also didn't get any press, so I couldn't find any more information about this. It's an ongoing series based on Sedgwick's webcomic, but the webcomic seems to have been a fan work of 
artifacts like you know there's the witchblade the witchblade then... darkness crossover series all, all of that it's basically it's like the japanese the joshi thing in which young artists yeah. will take a famous work and will do a often porn version of it oh and because it's sadic no jojinsi jo- oh, not God, not, al- not always it. not always but often very yeah like i remember there was a cartoon network thing where like dexter and the power the fu- of girls yeah the fusion and... fell universe sure you know that and in japan it's a very It's a thing that you do. It's not something that creators right. are saying, well, you shouldn't have touched my work. No. It's a way to encourage the fans and it's, it's like a way to develop new creators. It's like fan yeah, fiction. Yeah, but it's company-sanctioned fan fiction, right. which is what we get here. But uh, Witchblade? I managed to live 30 years without ever well, reading Witchblade. I, 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 haven't, okay. I haven't read it, but apparently the Ron Mars version was actually very good. You haven't read it though. I have, I <laughs> see, but the review because it's which I've had proper reviews. It's from like people. you know somebody comes to you and says there's a really good run of Spawn. See, I I wouldn't think Gen 13 is any good, but I've then I've read Adam Warren's Gen 13 and I fell in love. It's about the creators and it's about the work that they're doing, not about the concept. Yeah. How many bad Hawkeye stories have you had up until Matt Fraction came oh. around and fixed it? Well, I'm not crazy about Matt okay, Fraction's you Hawkeye know what? either, but I, I would understand you believe, what you're Would saying. you believe a Rocket Raccoon series before Scotty Young? No. See? No. If you're talking about a series based on a webcomic that's a fan fiction of Witchblade and other Top Cow properties, it's a weird sell. I, I'm giving it a pass, but I mean, you know, I'm always okay. here for Sajik getting more uh, work. Okay, next. Small. Boom. Okay. Okay, so there's a lot of new miniseries which we predicted because, you know, the thing with Boom is that they launch a lot of new miniseries at the same time, so they all end at the same time. So there's this new wave. We have Mike Carey and Mike Perkins teaming up for Rowan's Ruin, a four-issue horror-thriller miniseries. Unfortunate resemblance to Rucka's Black Magic right down to the character's name, because Rucka's protagonist is also called Rowan. <laughs> But, you know, Mike Carey... Cognatic, written by James Tinian IV, art by Eric Donovan. Eric with a Y. Mm-hmm. Why not? It's a three-issue miniseries from the team that brought you Mimetic, which was very well-reviewed. I have mm-hmm. not read it. Oh, it's very, very good. It's very good. The thing that's unclear to me is that this is, is being positioned as the second part of a trilogy that Tinian and Donovan are working on together. I'm not sure if it's plot-related or it's like a thematic sequel exactly. thing. Exactly. Yeah. That's not clear to me because Mimetic ends on a very... dark like appropriately dark but also the sort of thing like i'm not sure how you mm. could do a sequel to that but so maybe it's a thematic maybe thing. thematic which is fine you know they're doing really interesting things and i'm willing to follow tinian on his weird tangents because unlike alish cut he tends to stay grounded in what's actually happening in the story unlike alish cut he does not become wonderful He does not evolve into we're a beautiful butterfly. Review, we're going to have to review Zero someday nah. and, and, and oh. have it out. See, and just when I think I was out, they're pulling me back <laughs> in. See, I, I was thinking Noel Stevenson is off of Lumberjanes. I could let it go. I'm sure the next Raider will be fine, but I, I have a jumping off point. But mm-hmm. then Lumberjanes Beyond Bayleaf number one, one shot, $5 written by Faith Aaron Hicks. By Faith Aaron Hicks. I think Adventures of Superhero Girl was the one book that we've agreed on everything about it. We've agreed on other books, but no, I mean, we, we agreed both totally. really enjoyed yeah. it. Yes. We really, really enjoyed it. And I have to say, I'm kind of sad. Like, if Faith Aaron Hicks was available, I really wish she had been made subsequent writer. I'm sure that Stevenson chose her successor. Yes. But Faith Aaron Hicks writing Lumberjanes is going to be amazing. She might even do better than Stevenson. Yeah, she might. From IDW, a few things. The first is 
Uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, the Nemo Trilogy Sleepcase Collection, okay. if you like that sort of thing. I, I had already tuned out by then. Yeah, it's $40, all three Nemo hardcovers, which is a good price. It is. Speaking of good prices, mm-hmm. if you want, for $10 only, you can buy Rampage Jackson Street Soldier Volume 1, oh a collection of comics inspired by none other than uh, Mr. T. Wannabe, oh uh, MMA champion Rampage, Randy Rampage Jackson. Why? Written by Fabian Nicieza. Oh, God. Why? <laughs> Mike Barron, Barbara Kiesel, Tom Payer, huh? Martin Pascoe. Adam Beechin. Adam, Adam Beechin? Adam Beechin. <laughs> what are these names you're bringing me? <laughs> what is this? Seriously? Adam Beechin? Tom Payer? <laughs> Mike Barron, what the hell is going on here? Fabian Isiaza. Ever since NFL Super Pro, never ever Fabian Isiaza project been so low. <laughs> I'm, I'm very afraid. I'm afraid and confused. And we I shall don't review know. this. Okay, this is IDW. Like, I should not be surprised, but I am. <laughs> like, wow, uh, they really went for it. Uh, anything else? Uh, nope, that's all I got. Oh, God, it's been a long one. We shall go straight to the reviews. Okay. Shall we start with Power Up, number Let's. one? Okay, so six-issue miniseries. Written by Kate Laff, drawn by Matt Cummings from Boom Studios. Mm-hmm. From the Boombox imprint, specifically. Yeah, young adults, younger adults, I don't know. Youngish adults. I think... Adults who are young in spirit. I've never been able to differentiate between what Kaboom is doing and what Boombox is doing. I think it's just an issue of, like, Kaboom is child-oriented, mm-hmm. and Boombox is sort of, like, all ages in mm-hmm. the positive sense of the term. Uh, okay. So, I think so. I don't... So, the story is a takeoff on the anime trope of the magical schoolgirl, mm-hmm. and in this... First issue, we have an unmotivated pet store employee named Amy, mm-hmm. who finds herself and her fish, the fish under her care, weirdly empowered in a cosmic event, just as strange monsters begin to assault her in the sea. As the result of a miscalculated prophecy from the other side of the galaxy. Yeah. Uh, I just thought we should mention that. Well, yeah. It was supposed to hit the chosen whatever, Whoever and instead it hit Amy and the goldfish, and in the next few issues... Two other people that were in the solicits, but not. Uh, well, they're on. No, well, they, they one do of, appear in the issue. Yeah, but they're not getting empowered in this issue. So uh, let's talk about the plot okay. of the issue rather than the right. series as a whole. Okay. So there are two things going on. First of all, like the cover. From the cover, you can already tell this is going to be a funny miniseries because you have like these four characters who have been empowered and like they have big gold stars and they have all of these powers. But you look at them and it's like, so it's a guy in a skirt. Mm-hmm. Right, because he's wearing the uh, magical schoolgirl outfit. There's the mom. There's Amy herself, who has like you know purple hair and she's short and stocky. And there's the goldfish, which, when empowered, turns into a whale, a tiny whale, a teeny tiny whale with a giant X on its face. Yes, and it looks angry. It's like angry whale, right? Like he's channeling a lot of aggression that you know in his. So we have form. we have a big contender for the pet goat in, <laughs> yeah. in, in this year. I think sad goat is about to get dethroned as the best animal of the year. And okay, so in terms of overall plot, there's not a lot going on. Mm. This issue really just manages to introduce Amy as sort of like this lazy slacker. But I will say, in Let's Defense. She's not the kind of obnoxious slacker. Right? Yeah, it's she's not, not it's a not, James Franco. Yeah, character. it's not the mid nineties. Man, life is terrible, and I Dude, hate everything. Yeah, it's like and her boss 
although she's portrayed from her point of view as unsympathetic, she's not actually an annoying... Or why would anybody yeah. work for her character? It's like, like she's just want Amy to get her job on damn time. Exactly. She's That's not a cliche. Yes. She cares about Amy, so this fantastic event happens, right? Amy becomes empowered, the fish next to her becomes empowered as well, and she gets attacked. When her boss shows up, she's like, oh my god, are you okay? What happened? You know, She's like really concerned for her. So... Right from the start, you can see how with a lesser writer, they would have been stereotypes. Like, yes. Amy would have been annoying because, you know, she's lazy yeah. and unmotivated. And her boss would have been this nitpicking harridan who's, like, driving her crazy. And they're not. From the start, you have sort of this indication that Leth is working against the stream, as it were. And I like that. Yeah. I like the art on the design side. The action scene in the middle of the issue isn't very good. There's yeah. all sorts of jump cuts and people changing position and you have no idea. There's like shadow tentacles. Yes. And, and like whenever you get into that, it's like on the one hand... Uh, there's this one panel at the end of page 16 where I'm not sure she's charging up energy or this guy is trying to hit her with an energy ball and she's stopping it? I don't know if it's an energy ball or if it's the fish because she's holding the fish too. Yeah, but she's holding the fish under a different arm. Right. I don't know. The, the, I, I'm assuming that they're going to explain that when they get around no, to explaining No, I don't have any problem with it. And I really love the page where the fish becomes like <laughs> the energy whale. That's really cool. Laser eyes. But on the planning side, on the panel by panel transition, yeah. there's a need for improvement here. It can work in one of two ways. Whenever you have like these shadow monster type, mm. they're not in a fit form. So you always have like these tentacles and tendrils flying yeah. around. And it's like it's not focused. It can work thematically. It, but when you're looking at something and you're yeah, not but quite you need sure to be like is. a Bill Sinkovich to pull this yeah. kind of thing off. Yeah, and, and like you don't want Sinkovich drawing this no, type story. No, 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 no. I mean, no. I, you have to say that like the art here, Cummings' art is appropriate for the tone of the story. There are a few clarity issues, but on the other hand, the facial expressions are really cute, even though they're supposedly minimal. The eyes are just dots here. There's a very cartoonish yeah. aesthetic. But at the same time, when her employer, she jumps in and she hugs her and she's like, are you okay? And Amy has like this look of like, her eyes are wide open. She's like, oh, what's going on? Yeah. It's like you said, the pacing is a bit on the slow side. Sure. And for it's, a six issue mini, that's fine. I have to imagine that this was written as a trade and then cut mm -hmm. up because it's slow enough that you don't get the whole picture. But on the other hand, if I was reading this as a trade, I'd get to the end page and just turn the page, hmm. right? And you just keep going. But I'm definitely sticking around because I love the concept. I think Leth has this sort of subtle sense of humor where she's not going as crazy as yeah. she could. And we um, like Kate Leth. We like right. Kate or Die. I enjoy Bravest Warriors. Yeah, absolutely. She, I mean, I'm willing to write off what happened in Fresh Romance as maybe a result of being in an Bad anthology. Planning, yeah. But now that you mention it, Fresh Romance, when we talked about her story, we were like, well, she doesn't really it have the space to explain all these characters. And here also, she gets to the end of the first part of the six-part story, having introduced Amy, having shown the other members of the squad, but I don't think even like the name of the guy yeah. or the mom, they're not mentioned. And in the solicits, the guy is mentioned as a sort of a jock, and here he's... Nothing. He's a construction worker. Yeah. So there's sort of a, a Maybe it's a misolicits, I don't know. Maybe that's her strength. Maybe like if this had been an original graphic novel, it would have read more coherently. And we'll know more when the entire yeah. miniseries comes out. As it currently stands, like when I look at the issue, I'm sold. 
I'm here for the whole thing. Okay. Our next issue is from IDW. We're covering mm. all comers this oh, episode. Yeah. Godzilla in Hell number one, <laughs> written and drawn by Jim Stoko. As soon as this was solicited, my you, eyes... you, were, you knew that we were going to review this. So the plot is in the title, <laughs> and the story in is in the title, and that's it. It's remarkably, amazingly basic. Godzilla starts the issue falling into hell, fights some demons... And that's it. And you know what? This is an art book. Yeah. Let's be clear. Yeah, and, and there's every, no dialogue. Yeah, and every single issue will be written and drawn by a different creative team. And that's their problem because they've started, I think, with the highlight. Mm. It will be very hard to top what James Stockwell is doing in this issue with really nothing. They gave him nothing. Like, Godzilla falls in hell. Fight stuff. It's amazingly enjoyable. Well, hang on. That's not exactly true that they gave him nothing. Because the high concept here isn't just that Godzilla is in hell. It's that he's doing Dante's Inferno. Yeah. He's going to do the nine circles of hell. Yeah, but it's not like he's guided by a spirit guide. No. There's no Virgil here. Not yet. Who would play Virgil in this version? Mothra? Mothra? (laughs) None of them can speak. Ghidorah? I don't know. Uh, the reason I waited for it, aside from being a James Stoku fan, is that Stoku did Godzilla Half Century War, which was a wonderful, remarkable series about Godzilla, and the point of it was, Godzilla was basically a force of nature there, and the point of the story was the humans witnessing him from the side, as right. it should be. Here, you have Godzilla as a main character, and what are Godzilla's characteristics? He's angry, and he's very tenacious, and that's it. I feel like there is one scene here where... Stoko does manage to give uh, Godzilla, I was about to say gorilla, Godzilla, a bit of characterization, which is when he shows up in hell initially, he's standing in front of the sign that reads, Abandon all hope you Which is larger than him. And he destroys it with his atomic breath. Like, nobody tells me. Exactly. Like, abandon all hope. Here's what I think about your hope, right? So, I feel like there is a sort of weird attempt here to give Godzilla some kind of recognizable trait. I'm not sure it works, though, because, like, for example, what Stoko demonstrates here is the first circle of hell that Godzilla is in is lust. But the content of the story is fighting this creature that at first seems to be Godzilla, like a mirror version of him. A yes. With scars, and is it a female Godzilla? I assume it's the Succubus Godzilla. Is it a female Godzilla? I don't know. Uh, You can't tell by looking. Well, there is, you know, the chest plate is... No, but the chest plate is a bit sticking out, so almost the impression of... Right, maybe. Yeah, it's <laughs> maybe. How would the female Godzilla look like? I don't know. The toenails aren't painted, so it's very difficult to tell, and there are no eyelashes. Uh, but anyway, so, but the actual design of the monster, you know, it starts as just a fake-looking Godzilla, but when mm-hmm. it opens up, that's... Mm. That's... A, Ama- that's stunning. creepy as hell design. Absolutely Stoker was always good with the monster feature stuff, and here he just lets it all out. Even before that, you have a cloud of tiny humans mm-hmm. swarming all around him, and it's amazing. No, I mean, like, this issue, I don't think anyone who picks up this issue thinking, James Stoker, for the art, right? Yes. You're getting your money's worth with this issue. It looks absolutely phenomenal. The detail, the outlandish scenarios. Initially, I was like, "Eh, I'm not so sure, lust, whatever. But now, like, there is that panel where he sniffs the other Godzilla. Mm -hmm. So maybe it is lust? I don't know. But the fight with the succubus is amazing. Just, like, every part of it is really, really good. And, I mean, again, it's Godzilla in hell. 
Adjust your expectations, right? You're not here well, to read, like, some kind of... It's not Shakespeare. And no. And doesn't want to be. Doesn't want to be, doesn't have to be. Though Shakespeare, Godzilla, and Hell, <laughs> I would watch that. Forsooth, thy atomic breath be blue as the sky above. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. The best thing that I can say about it is that it accomplishes everything it sets out to do and more so. Like, I don't think that anyone could be disappointed by this issue going into it knowing what you're about to get. I will say, though, the prospect of rotating creative teams is the sort of thing that would make me go, maybe I won't come back for Well, another. I'm curious. If Who's they, next? The next, the strange thing is the writer is Ulysses Farinas. I don't know who the artist is. Hmm. And Ulysses Farinas is a great artist and would be a great fit for this type of story. Could it be Jeff Darrow? No, no. Jeff Darrow, it's not scheduled for 2022, so it's not Jeff Darrow. <laughs> that would be a bit of a challenge, wouldn't it? Yeah, I would have that's liked why, to that's, see... That's why I said the problem for them, I assume, is really, who are you going to get, aside from Jeff Darrow, who's as good as Stoko on art? Well, Who according to IDW, Godzilla in Hell is actually going to be oh. written and drawn by Bob Eggleton. Oh, really? I was sure it's... Uh, Ulysses Farinas maybe is doing a, a later issue, but this does sort of raise a problem of... Bob Eggleton is not James Stoko. No. Conceptually speaking, when you're talking about Godzilla going through the circles of Hell, it makes sense, sense. to have rotating teams, yes. right? Because Hell itself, like as conceptualized in Dante's Inferno, shouldn't all have a uniform look. Yes. They should be completely different landscapes, completely different. The problem, though, is that if you're not operating on a unified style, you could read something like this, which is amazing. Like, Stoko does amazing, amazing work in this issue. And then the second one could be, well, so Eggleton comes in and then what? Maybe not so good? Maybe you don't know what you're getting from yeah. issue to issue. It's yeah. a problem for a $4 comic. I'll wait for the previews for the second issue for the preview pages, and I'll look mm. at the art. And if it looks fine, I'm there all the way. I'm not expecting anything amazing. I'm just expecting amazing fun, which from this yeah. issue I've gotten. And you know what? This issue gives you the entertainment. And you know what? Even for. if the following issues are crap, I would still put this issue, I would rate it highly as a one-shot, because what's the plot? Godzilla is in hell, fight some monsters, that's it. It's good enough. Yeah, well, I'm assuming that it's going to end with a showdown with Satan. Yeah. And Godzilla's going to win. Oh, obviously. And he might even come back to life at the end. So, so if it's successful, do you think they'll do Storm in Paradise? Maybe. They'll end with Godzilla versus God? Hey. Hey. Godzilla. Oh, yeah. This is like in Kaiju Maximum. Like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. So, you know, yeah. That's the prequel to Kaiju Max. <laughs> uh, I could be down for that. Uh, the third, n- okay. the third number, third number one. one. Captain Britain and the Mighty Defenders, mm-hmm. written by L. Ewing, drawn by Alan Davis from Marvel. So here we are again. At the Battle World. You okay, can, so I'll, can, I'll say... You cannot see Sean's face. It's amazing. I'm exhausted. <laughs> okay, no, I... You don't I'll read them every week for uh, review purpose. I do. I'm exhausted. I don't think it's a surprise to say that we picked this book specifically for the creators, right? Because at this point, I've given up on the idea of Secret Wars telling meaningful stories. I'll settle for something fun to read. And Ewing and Davis do provide that, at least, okay, right? Okay, now, the... Starting point is very interesting. Yes. In this world, within the battle world, in this reality, Tony Stark decided to sacrifice himself when he was captured and put in a cave and gave the armor to Dr. Yinsen mm-hmm. and told him, well, I've done too many 
horrible things I cannot continue to leave. You can actually do good with this technology. Right. This is a universe in which Tony Stark was less of a douchebag. Yeah. Okay. And so Yinsen becomes the Iron Man and becomes... Well, he becomes Rescue. Oh, right. Which I sorry, really sorry. like yeah. because he takes on the identity that was given to yeah. Pepper Potts. And the team that he assembles around him are called the Defenders because, like you said, we don't need any swords. We don't want to... operate with violence we want to yeah. create a, a utopia it's a utopian world and they succeed by the start of the issue it's basically within the constraints of battle world mm-hmm. this is a perfect place except in this reality unlike most other places we've been through everybody knows that doom is not a benevolent god they're like mm-hmm. yeah we have to follow doom will but you know those those rules are really really awful Even their local Thor, which in this version is She-Hulk, because mm-hmm. why not? I don't know. See, this is exactly what we were complaining about when we read A-Force, right? One of the major problems that I've had with Secret Wars was precisely the sort of tacit acknowledgement that Battleworld has always been this way, and mm-hmm. everyone's okay with Doom being God. They're all cool with it. They all believe it. Nobody questions well, it. Well, you can't anything. do... Not every series can be everybody realizes that everything is wrong. No, but, but I mean, th- 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 this is basically... We know by now that Secret Wars is not going to be this big revelation. It's not going to be like this huge thing. It's just House of M. Yes. Age of X, Age of Apocalypse, da-da-da-da. It's the same damn thing. But within that context, what Ewing and Davis do here that I don't think any other Battleworld tie-in did, certainly not A-Force... Is from the very beginning you have these questions right and then of course you have the introduction of the titular character Captain Captain Britain, Britain this being Faiza Hussein from mi13 mm-hmm. the... I had been wondering where she disappeared to good can to you, see her back can you believe that there was a time that Marvel put a female Muslim character as the holder of Excalibur hmm. the future ruler of Britain within the comic nobody men talked about it yeah either. it was well no Red Captain Britain, but that's, uh, that's the unfortunate. But, you know, that's amazing. And it's not that long ago. Yeah. Seven years ago, Marvel, Although, Marvel had a female Muslim character being the future ruler of England with Captain Britain saying, you will lead us someday. I think part of the reason that that never caught on was because as far as I know, Faiza never showed up again after that. Yeah. Like as soon as Paul Cornell's run was over, that was the end well, of it. Well, bless El Yun. And let's, He's not let us let... not forget... That there was another female Captain Britain shortly before that, but she oh, was written um, by Chuck Austin, and okay. we don't need to no, talk about so her. So bless Al Ewing, he never lets a good side character drop, and... And he, she really is good here. Yeah, and he actually tries to incorporate all sorts of characters, minorities and women, and mm-hmm. never make it into an act of tokenism. And, you know, in this series, are there any white people? Well, there's, there's Emma Frost, but we'll... Well, well, well there's good white people. There's She-Hulk, and, but she's green. I don't know if that counts. Jennifer yeah. Walters is still a white character. Well, yeah, so... But in, in any event... And I she, mean, was, she was the sole white member of the Mighty Avengers when, when Ewing was writing right. that. I will say this. There are some problems with this issue that result from it being a Secret Wars tie-in. By which I mean, you have, first of all, that clumsy dialogue in the beginning where, like, She-Hulk is expositing again yes. the setup for Battleworld, which we already know, and we've already heard all this before. But, what catches my interest right from the start is the fact that Yinsen is having dreams about, you know, the world before. They're already questioning the setup. And then, you know, Faiza comes in, and there's a bit of humor here. 
that I haven't seen in a lot of Secret Wars times. Oh, there's a lot of humor in the final pages and the reveal of their enemies. But even before See, that, when uh, Spider-Hero turns up, right? <laughs> so you find out that in this reality, Spider-Man, Peter Parker has been killed. And Prowler of the... Bobby Brown. Formerly of the Slingers, is trying to take his place. But unfortunately, people just keep calling him Spider-Hero because he's not Spider-Man. And it frustrates him. He's like, God damn it, not again. Faiza's first words when she enters this world is, sorry, I broke your wall thing. The phrase focus totality of my psychic powers actually appears in this issue. No, no, no. Non-ironically. She asks, why is your hammer given? I don't need it. I have these hammers. I have my hammers Put her jokes up. There's humor here. And really, the revelation of their neighboring kingdom, which is invading them, is amazing. That's the one thing that Battle World makes do that's great. It's just so beautifully ridiculous. It's Judge Dredd, right? But... Is this based on an existing property, or is this something that Ewing came up with? No, 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 no. Ewing wrote Judge... Ewing is still writing right. Judge Red occasionally. He's so a 2008 yeah. writer, but like, has there ever been a Marvel world, or, or is this original uh, in this context? Well, uh, the Marvel Timeline Police, originally, that appeared in, I want to say, Walt Simonson's... Thor? Not Thor, I think something else. Okay. Something by Simonson were Judge Red parodies. You know, they were called Judge Peace and Judge Dad, okay. and they all had these face-covering helmets. So, But not like this. No, not like this. And, okay. you know, the tower at the end, we see the, the symbol. We won't say who. We, we know to, who it is. Yeah, but it's really, it's just, I really like it's L. Ewing. fun. L. Ewing is the strangest writer in the term <laughs> that he's playing it almost completely straight Marvel 1980s style. It's just... A good, fun adventure comic with interesting characters, good plot, good dialogue, and really good use of what you said is a very bad situation. Like, well, another Secret War time. Oh, no, no, no. You did not see that yeah. one coming. It feels like, in terms of the pace of the issue, as soon as he jumps the hurdle of mm. having to acknowledge the setup, mm. and really, I think, as soon as Faiza makes her appearance, right, as soon as she turns up... That's the point where the story really begins. Yeah, and that's uh, where Ewing and Davis just shine. Now, Alan Davis, I think, would be a problem for younger audiences because his style is very much really 1970s, 1980s centric. Even with modern coloring, he still <laughs> looks like old Alan Davis. But is that a bad thing, though? Well, not for me and not for you, but I think a lot of younger readers that I talk to just look at his stuff he, because he was with Ewing on Avengers Ultron Forever, for example, and they're like, what is this? Right. It's just, it's it's not bad, you know, because it's no, Ellen Davis. It's a style that isn't yeah, common Yeah, it's so anymore. out of favor. But on the other hand, like, when you look at the designs for the characters, they don't necessarily seem, like, no, not the 80s Not the designs, just the line work, the penciling. It's just mm. so... I don't know. Rough. I was okay with it. No, I'm okay with it. I'm just saying... Like, there's that, there's that moment where Fize is being attacked by Emma Frost. Mm-hmm. Her reality is sort of blurring as she's being hit by the focus totality of the psychic powers. <laughs> I'm never going to stop saying that. There is a lot to enjoy here, and I will be coming back for the second. I actually wish this was an ongoing. Well, it's only a two-issue miniseries. Well, can read the other uh, L. Ewing series. I will, following. and I'll enjoy it, but it's like, I really, really like this as something that is retro, mm-hmm. that Marvel would not necessarily be producing. It's funny, it's entertaining, and it doesn't get caught up. I'm sure that Davis has some creative input here in uh, terms of, like, you know, presenting... Oh, Excalibur, Ellen yeah, Davis? Yeah, you know, like, that he would present 
characters who, for all of their altered circumstances, still have something recognizable. Faiza, I think, is the strongest example of that because she is Captain Britain and because it's unclear as to, you know, like, what's her continuity deal? Does she remember? Does she not remember? Captain Britain, multiverse. I don't know what's going on with any of that. I didn't even know that Brian Braddock was dead. Wasn't aware of it. So, great issue. I will come back for the second one. Wish it was an ongoing. As Secret Wars tie-in goes, it's a cut above the average. Yep, I agree. And our final review mm. is not a trade. The main course. It's not a story arc. It's the first issue, actually. We're doing another first issue, but it's, it's 112 really, pages. <laughs> it's a very long first issue. We have issue. reviewed trades that are shorter, shorter than, than this, this one. Yes. <laughs> Island number one, the yes. first of a new anthology edited by Brandon Graham. God bless him. Mm. God bless his beautiful fingers, his beautiful voice, his beautiful everything. In this first issue, we have work by Marion Churchland, Brandon Graham himself, Emma Rios, Kelly Sue DeConnick, and some guy named Ludro, which I've never read before. Nope. And it's three comic stories. You're getting your money's worth here, plus a short story by Kelly Sue DeConnick, a short Words only story. It's not a story. It's more of a piece, a, a tribute. Yeah, a personal okay. piece, mm-hmm. and and sort of an intro outro by Marion Churchland. Yeah, I love the intro. It's just so <laughs> hilariously, it is, amazingly. Like, she, is that Brandon Graham in the pictures? Yes. Yeah. It's like when you follow him on Twitter and such. He and Marion, because they're a couple in real life, right. have these avatars. And he's like this odd slug, and she's like this this lady who's always like bothered by him, like, oh my god, you're okay. silly. Well, at least you bring me coffee, Brandon. <laughs> That's cute. Yes. Okay, uh, so this was announced a while back from Image, very much intending to be an experimental anthology. Yes. Right? It's not supposed to be some kind of straightforward approach. It's meant to be weird. It's meant to be off the wall. It's meant to be unusual. And it certainly is these things. But, as with all anthologies, it comes down to how much of this do you actually enjoy. And I enjoy everything. Okay, so okay. let's start okay, I it. just, I have to quote the the, okay. the line, I am the all being that will grant you, Brandon Graham, ultimate freedom to do whatever you wish with your time on Earth. Don't screw it up. Why do you sound like my publisher? <laughs> Anything I want. Well, cannibalism, obviously. But we'll work up to that. Mm, maybe a comic magazine. Can, can you believe? It's just so great. It is really great. And I then mean, he plays his magic flute and he calls upon the creators who are like mm. rising from the, to the challenge like the Fantastic Four in their first issue. Yeah, that's true. The first story is uh, ID, written mm-hmm. and drawn by Emma Rios, so it's beautiful. We don't even have to talk about the art, right, because it's Emma Rios. It's Emma Rios. So, yeah. It's an odd story about three people sitting in a cafe talking, and it turns out that all of them have body issues, and their issues is they don't like their bodies and they want out of them. For different reasons. Yes. And meanwhile, in the background of the story, in whatever country they're in, there's this sort of revolution brewing yeah, this one had some coherence issues, I think, because you have these three characters mm-hmm. who are sitting and they have volunteered to be guinea pigs for a company that is trying to perfect the process of transferring consciousness from one body to another. Yes. So, for example, Noah is transgender. So as far as she's concerned, she wants to be a man. Like, she is a man. She identifies as a man. And she wants to be transferred into a male body. Mike is a war veteran, so he's trying to escape his own uh, uh, past Charlotte is 51 years old in the stories, so 
It's interesting. The other characters assume that it's because she's old, but she doesn't. No, see she's a disaffected writer, and she's like, "I want new experience in order yeah. to find new angles, or I'll dry up." Yeah, it's not about wanting to be young. Yes. So that aspect of it is clear, but then you have this constant intrusion of the story of the mines on Pluto and the slaves and the riots. I think it's all sort of work, at least. Here, because this is part one. It's not a one-and-done story. Mm-hmm. There will be a continuation, I hope, I assume. Right. I think it's the revolution is supposed to symbolize sort of a... We're breaking on the inside, we're breaking on the outside, we're unhappy with who we are as people, and we're unhappy mm-hmm. with who we are as a society. At least this. And the science fiction elements mentioned in the background are there to establish, okay, it's not super advanced, you know, it's not like we're traveling to, uh, I don't know the planet Zoltar every day, but it mm. is more advanced than our real day. For now, that's enough for me as an explanation to what type of world it is. I feel like it's a distraction, though. If this entire comic had just been the three of them sitting at that cafe and talking it out, well, that might have been more interesting. Because wouldn't like, what wouldn't is... be bored of an all-talking stuff? Not necessarily. It depends on how well they talk, right? It depends yeah, on well, what you yeah. see. All those scenes of the violence doesn't really have anything to do with these specific characters because they're not part of the riot. Well, I think... They don't know it. They don't even talk about the fact that you have these slave mines on Deimos. I think it's important to ground them and for us to understand that whatever personal issues they have, it's important that Amarius keeps in mind that Mm. it's their personal issues and the world isn't limited to these characters. And I think it's a very clever thing to do, not to make the whole story... Because sometimes when these stories are presented... The missing, though. There's no linkage between the two plots as far as i could see because like it's not that noah for example has a stake in the mines right none of these characters come from these mines none of them are workers it's just something that sort of intrudes into their space yeah and i think it's intentional i think it's sort of to remind the reader and the characters that your issues there are big and they are worthy of discussion but don't forget that you're part of a world and in your world Horrible stuff is happening around you and okay. and limiting yourself to this is our problems and our problems alone mm. sort of shuts you off. And it works with the metaphor of those people who want to transfer bodies because to transfer body means to transfer experience. You can't just transfer bodies and forget about everything else but yourself. Well, they haven't. Not yet. Had they done that and then get to that point, I feel like that might have made more sense. But now, for example, I mean, they're talking about it as an experimental procedure. No one has actually done it and succeeded. This is about, like, in terms of what Rios is showing us at this point, this is about why they're going for the procedure in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. Why they're willing to volunteer themselves for something that could be dangerous. I'm not convinced that the world-building is deep enough within these 30 pages to support it. But, you know, it might be something that she ties more strongly into next issue. Okay, uh, the next one is a short piece by Kelly DeConnick, illustrations by Emma Rios, and it's called... Railbirds, yes. Railbirds. This is a tribute to a science fiction writer named Nagi Essep. You've read anything by her? No, I can't say that I have. Okay, she was apparently Kelly Sue's mentor, mm-hmm. at least partly, and it's sort of a remembrance of her and how Kelly Sue became a writer. Yeah. We both had problems with Kelly Sue's writing before. I didn't like the first issue of Bitch Plant. Have you continued on reading it? I'm waiting for the arc to be concluded, oh. and I will be reading the first arc of Bitch Planet, but I will say that she's never been a, 
a writer who yeah, immediately and, grabs and it, Pretty right? Deadly also I really didn't Pretty enjoy. Deadly didn't work Captain Marvel didn't work uh, I think a lot of the time the problem with her is that she's trying so hard to be clever and yeah and she doesn't have that problem here here's well, just a, here's just a small personal piece and it's not magnificent but it's well it's not fiction I, Yeah, she's and, talking about things that actually happened. And, yeah, But and even I think, here, for example, yes. the first paragraph has like this very, very passive-aggressive or defensive tone, right? It's like, mm-hmm. you're going to hear what I'm saying, and you're going to think that I'm a horrible person, and maybe I have a personal grudge against you, and maybe you're going to say this, and maybe I'm going to say that, and I can't control what you're doing. Okay, I understand the point that you're wanting to make, but you didn't have to make it that way. You know what I mean? I don't understand the, the necessity of this opening paragraph. Yeah, she's writing about the passing of a writer who was very close to her. Yeah, who reads this and thinks, oh, that horrible person writing about her dead friend? Yeah. Grrr! Yeah. To be completely fair, Kelly Sue DeConnick has taken a lot of flack from internet trolls oh. simply for being who she is. Right? Yeah, you want, you want to be for her simply because her enemies are so... Right. She has people who declare themselves their enemies, right. which like, is I wish bad enough. Well, I mean, it's a whole other discussion. Can we just like, not like someone is writing for their yeah. writing and that's it? It is sort of a problem these days where you're like, I don't like Kelly Sue DeConnick. Oh, you're one of those. It's like, no, I just don't like her writing. But he, see, here I actually like Kelly Sue DeConnick's writing. I like this piece. It's not great, but for this type of stuff, which I don't usually read, admittingly, I enjoyed it. It was short. Yeah. It was it's poignant. It's when she's it was, talking about, like, you know, how she met Matt Fraction. Yeah. And it's like, it's a look at a personal layer that... I wouldn't go looking for it. Kelly Sudeconic's autobiography, I wouldn't pick it up off the shelf, but it's written well. Yes. You know, so that, that much is And fine. again, aside from the first paragraph, it doesn't over-clever itself. It doesn't try to be like, oh, you didn't see that coming. No, no, no. Y- hmm. You see what's coming. Yeah. You know exactly what's coming. And well, she's it would have been inappropriate anything. to do that. Like, yeah, in a tribute act. Exactly. So, I will say that her description of Essip's work... Is interesting. I, I might look her up. Oh, see, if she made you Maybe. look up Estep, she did her job properly. Maybe. We'll see. Okay, the next bit is a Multiply Warheads 30-pager. Mm-hmm. I can't even imagine how someone who hasn't read the previous Multiply Warheads stories would even think of that. Well, you're sitting next to one, so clearly you can imagine. Um, well, you can imagine. You, okay. t- you have read Multiple Warheads. Yes. So what did you think of this? I think it's just as good as the previous ones. Mm-hmm. And you know what? If you think you're confused now, you should probably read the whole series and you'll be even... It won't help. It won't, you'll be more confused because I, I started reading Multiply Warheads recently again when they announced this is coming out. And really, the plotlessness becomes the point. You, you sort of expect stuff to keep on happening because the first issue of Multiply Warheads, the color version, because it started as a series of short stories in Oni, I believe, mm-hmm. is uh, the couple, Sextica and uh, Dimitri. Escaping from the Red City after the house gets sort of blown over and decide, well, we're traveling, we'll just, you know, do whatever we want. And Sextica is an organ smuggler in this odd, odd, post-futuristic, post-apocalyptic, post-magical Russia. Okay. And there's this bounty hunter chasing them. But then he goes on, the bounty hunter, to a completely different plot. And mm. he never meets them again. And they two just, you know, they do their thing. And it's really... Oddly, plotlessly, this charming. came out before Prophet. Uh, yes, yes. Okay, so it's interesting to see Graham's evolution as a writer 
across these three works. Because, for example, what you're describing, that sense of aimless, wandering, whatever, Prophet had some of that, but in the larger context of a storyline that was proceeding according to pace, right? Here, I'm reading this, and I have no idea what's going on. I don't know who these people are. I don't understand a damn thing. I will say I... that the art is good. And, you know, the visuals, to a certain extent, make it tolerable to keep reading. Really? I... But I didn't get it. I don't... I think... How can I say it? It's just so enjoyable for what it is. I mean, they have a talking warhead who's an egg clock who talks about sunny side, you know, past minute 10. It's just so mm -hmm. funny. And everything... Every single thing is a pun or a visual joke or... Both at the same time, and have yeah. you read the afterword for the for the anthology, the, the final two pages? The no. Oh, because um, because he, Brandon explains his ideas regarding how to write, okay. and he says what's important to me as a creator is that people feel existing really in their world, and mm. for that they have to interact with the environment a lot. So I want to show people doing stuff that's unimportant, quote-unquote, to the plot. Right. People eating, people going to the bathroom, people Which just thinking about... Which is certainly true for everything that he's done. I mean, yes. you know, in Prophet you have that, and in King Eight C House you have that too. In King City. Sure. And I really love it. I just, you know, for me, I don't need a plot with Bender and Comic. I just okay. need to see him do his thing, and yeah, it's it's a bit hard simply because, well, he puts a lot of stuff on the page. Yeah. It, it feels like work reading it sometimes, but it's so enjoyable and so I mean, unique. He's, he's one of those creators where whenever there's a Brendan Graham project, right, whenever something is mm. announced, I always pick it up because I know that he's interesting, right? Yeah. It's always interesting. You're never bored with a Brendan Graham project. But I can't say that I get the enjoyment out of this that I want to get as a reader mm. because, like, going through this, beautiful imagery right really stunning gorgeous artwork and i'm following it and i'm turning the pages and it's like lovely visuals i have no damn clue what is happening here like i don't understand anything anything mm. i don't know that's okay for an isolated experience it's okay when you're reading a one shot this is exactly the problem that i had with profit you are 10 issues in, you're 15 issues in, and you have no clue what's going on. Really? I, I really got profit from issue one. It was really hard. Really hard me. to follow. We're reading from such different angles. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, you, know. you should be happy because in the post-issue thing, you also said that the next Multiply Award strip will only be in issue four. So okay. if you didn't like it, the next issue okay. will well, present something totally different. That's sort of the question mark when it yeah. comes to Island in general, right? We're talking about rotating teams and rotating mm. stories and things that you liked about this issue might not be in the next issue and things that you didn't like yeah. might not appear at all for a couple of months. Yeah, but again, we've mentioned French romance before in this podcast. Mm. When we've talked about French romance, we said one of the big problems was every single story there was a third, a continuation of something, and they told you that every single story would continue as it is to the next issue. So if you right. didn't like them, well, no variation is Come coming. back in five issues. Yes. Yeah. Here you have one thing that is over and done with, the Kalashnikonic sure. piece. You have two things that are... You have one thing that is ongoing, the Amorias piece. You have the odd one out, which is this one. And, well, you have the next one, which I have no idea what it is. The next one, I really, really like. I like, but I can't explain why. Uh, it's... No, I it's, can explain why. Okay, it's by, it's <laughs> by a, a guy called Ludro, and it's called Dagger Proof Mummy, Mummy, which I like. And and it's okay. You know what? You tell it. I'll you tell it. it. I told okay. the other ones. Okay. 
So, the plot of the story is as follows. There's this girl yes. who enjoys skateboarding. She, they're in some kind she of was a skater girl, space. yes. He was a skater boy. She's looking for someone who she saw at a, at a competition and was sort of the spark between them. And this person has disappeared. Mm-hmm. At the same time, there's this weird mummy creature running around getting into fights and being daggerproof. Also, he's fighting with humanoid cats. Which is the, always a great thing. The girl is human. It's like, listen, when you see Andrew Lloyd Webber's cats, don't you ever wish there were a couple of fight scenes to liven things up? I mean, sure. <laughs> I wish people would stab Andrew Lloyd Webber occasionally. Well, who doesn't? I'm sure that there have been attempts on his life. But, you know, this is for... Anyway, I can explain why, of all the stories here, Daggerproof Mummy is oh. my favorite. And the reason for that is, in terms of basic characterization... In terms of like what we see from the very beginning, mm-hmm. a lot of it comes down to right from the start when you're in this like really weird urban setting and it's not entirely clear what's going on. It's sort of a 1980s fantasy, yeah, uh, fed via manga because like Dragon Ball Z, you have some of the people are regular people and some of them are just cats, animal people because why not? They're cats. Yes. Why shouldn't they be cats? But at the same time, the first thing that we see. of the protagonist is she's saying everything sucks now that you're gone right I, and she's can, wandering this city you know you can totally for... you can totally understand why Brendan Graham liked it yeah that's like the start of King City it's like everything sucks since you've been gone King City I think didn't have the human element the way that this one does. no but it's it's the same thing he really likes these relationships that work because it's not broken because they had a terrible falling apart it's broken because Literally, he's gone. She doesn't know what happened to yeah, him. He's yeah. gone. The, the context of this issue is she is looking for this person. She's trying to get over him, but she's in a city where everywhere she goes, she's reminded of him. Mm-hmm. And like, that's like a really relatable, really human, really identifiable condition. And it's something, for example, that Multiple Warheads doesn't have. Oh, I think... Because when you're sitting there, it's like, well, who do you feel... No, 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 I disagree. I think Multiple Warheads have this human element simply in the relations between Sextican and Dimitri, which is very much young people, you know, today... No, 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 today. I mean in Island specifically, not in Multiple Warheads as a no, whole. No, I'm like, also talking story about here. Island. Okay. I can't help but bring the load I have ah, with okay. the story from Island, so... as. From my point of view, it's always these two people just doing whatever they want and enjoying their life. Right. Okay, but we're not in multiple like, words. You know, we're talking about Lutero. Yeah, there's, like, there's a really interesting romantic element here within like this futuristic, mm-hmm. weird, dystopian setting. Yes. Reno is... She's talking to this cat and then the cat answers her. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's, like, it's a really weird moment, but... The way that Ludro designs it, it's like, oh, yeah, of course the cat answers her. She's like, yeah, I'm looking for this guy, and he just disappears. He's like, is he a skater? Like, I haven't seen anyone like that. And you can tell like that the cat <laughs> is lying to her, the way that it looks. And I really like how the, sound, really effects, cute. How the sound effects are drawn, like graffiti on yeah. the page. It's just, it's a joy. It's just a joy. It's really good. This is exactly the situation that I had with... Fresh romance in that there's one story in the entire anthology that mm. I really really like and it's sort of like a problem for me to justify well would I continue buying island only for this tragic bizarre fantasy where like the guy that she had a crush on skated off a bridge and disappeared <laughs> he did a body he did a <laughs> he did a breaking point away whatever and she's like hmm That was interesting. He transcended into Skater Haven. <laughs> That's funny. So, I really liked all, I liked three, uh, I liked all three stories. 
Next issue will continue the Ludro one, so mm-hmm. that's for you. And the Amorius one will right. develop, so you can I, decide if you like it. And a story by Simon Roy. I'll say this. Mm-hmm. I'll say Amorius' story, I'm sort of on the fence. Like, I feel that maybe if she has a little more room, it can be clearer how these two threads are meant to connect. And if that's the case, I feel like the story could succeed. Daggerproof Mummy, I'm here for the whole thing. If Multiple Warheads doesn't come back... I really love okay, the, we'll I see. really love the, the, you know, the afterword with just the Brandon Graham avatar, gulging drinks and, and taking nachos from a fancy waiter who has a kettle <laughs> for a head. Oh, that's, you know what? For me, that's as perfect as an anthology can get because even the stuff that I didn't, you know, there's nothing that I didn't like. Even the stuff that I liked less mm-hmm. is so curious and new and I really wish I've read it when I was 20. Right. Because it's such a perfectly, amazingly young people's doing what they want without the constraints. Yeah, I mean, it's at least pointing out that this is a type of anthology that I don't think exists in the market on a regular basis. Yeah, there's heavy metal, but nobody... Yeah, it's like heavy metal, but almost nobody reads that. Heavy metal might become this under Morrison, but they're not there right now. And 2000 AD, they do have different kinds of stories, but 2000 AD has a very consistent style. Yeah, and they have these characters. It always has to be Judge Red or Slain or the ABC Wars. Even Dark Horse Presents always has to be... Every once in a while, you'll have a Hellboy story, and you always have some new Dark Horse project to announce and Dark Horse Presents is usually these very 90s alternative comics best Mm. stuff and here it's no it's some of these names you know some of them are pretty new and some of them are complete unknown like Ludro at least for me is a complete unknown I had never heard of him and I really like this I like this as a concept I like this as a product because it's $8 people and I have the physical issue it has a spine it's like a trade yes it's like you're buying a trade every month for, for only eight, nine dollars, eight dollars, eight dollars, eight ninety nine or seven ninety nine, eight, eight dollars, eight dollars okay. on the even dot. better, and you get tons of new stuff and interesting, and it's brand new and unique, yep. and it's everything that's good in comics. As with all anthologies, I hesitate to recommend it simply because it's uneven, because there's no way to guarantee that you'd enjoy all of the content. But I will say that even the stuff here, like there are no outright failures. There's nothing here that it just like, even multiple warheads, which I don't get, I'll admit to having read and saying, you know, looks nice. <laughs> and that's okay. Okay. So I, I will be coming back for the next couple of issues. Where it goes from here, who knows, right? Who knows? Because, like, this thing could I, I run re- for... I really hope it succeeds. I really want to see this type of thing rewarded. Mm-hmm. I want to see $8 comics featuring 100-plus pages rewarded and the Marvel, you know, $5 for 30-some pages. 22 pages. Yeah. You know... No, thank you. Yeah, On principle, it should be rewarded. On execution, it should be rewarded. Mm-hmm. On Brandon Graham, it should be rewarded. And really good for Brandon Graham for amassing the kind of clout and influence at Image that he has in order to launch a project like this, because this could not have been an easy sell. Yep. So, so uh, congratulations, yeah. and we'll see what happens with it. Yeah, so these were the reviews. This was a very long episode of The <laughs> Smorgasbord. If you're still awake, we will say, uh, bon appetit. <laughs>